podcast this week, we have a lovely chat with Police Academy legend Steve Gutenberg and the Wolfwalkers duo of Tom Moore and Ross Stewart return for another bite at the Pod Cherry. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that is desperately in need of the vaccine and a haircut. If there was any way we could combine the two, that would be great. Wait a minute. Have I just stumbled upon a million pound idea? Yes, I'm going to combine blow drying with the jab. And my new no, business is no, blow jab. No, no Chris. No, no. I, once I said it out loud, I saw yeah. the problems. Anyway, hello pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Before we begin, I should address the elephant in the room. Hey elephant, get out of here. Oh no. <laughs> You're too big for the room, elephant. It's a really Oof. rude thing to say about any yes, of your This week's pods podcast is coming guests. from the end of Blackpool Pier. Oh, my God. Oh, I'd love to go to Blackpool Pier. That'd be amazing. Down the Golden Mile. Oh. Last week, a tactical error meant that the wrong file was uploaded. And so for a few days, instead of this lovingly crafted podcast with its musical introduction and professional <laughs> sound editing and interviews with famous people, many of you got a rough file featuring none of that, simply just Helen and James, sometimes indulging in small talk, studded by long silences and with not a single bit where it was me. Now, I would apologize for that, but most of you fuckers said it was actually an improvement, <laughs> so you can all go to hell. Uh, it was significantly better. It was significantly it was better. The whole and podcast which shorter. Was you removed. <laughs> <laughs> it's my dream, really, my fantasy come true. <laughs> Luckily, this week we are back to normal, as you have already heard. Isn't that right? Our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Next up, we have. As part of our three colleagues of such lethal cunning, full compliment this week, we have not just the fifth Beatle, but the sixth Beatle as well. John Nugent. <laughs> Hello. Uh, the quiet Beatle, they call me. I'm, you know, hopefully my recording will work as well this week. Yes, hopefully it'll be, it'll be fine. Who was the fifth Beatle, John? Well, accounts vary. Some say Pete Best, some say Sir George Martin. Some say George Best. Some say George Best. <laughs> don't, don't, they don't, though. <laughs> they don't. They don't do that. Who was the fifth Beatle? Mm, a debate that I'm sure grips James Dyer, our great big fucking nerd, keeps him awake at night. Who was the fifth Beatle? Jimbo? Who were the first four? It's probably the more pressing question for me. But, Can you uh, name the Beatles, James Dyer? <laughs> sure. Steve, Jeff, Terry and Clive. Famous, all of them. Great, from Liverpool. Wow. Love them. Love the work. At least he got Liverpool. Who were Lee James? Come on, James, you can do it. I believe in you. I, yes, I can. Amazingly, even someone of my staggering lack of pop culture knowledge can name the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, Jeff McCartney, Peter Lennon, uh, Ringo Moon, and, uh, and George Stevenson. Oh, so, the balls. Uh, you know, There's, yeah. you know. they're, they're the people who were in that film um, yesterday. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is physically painful now. This is physically painful. You know that painful. film that made them famous? You know Well, the one. you know what? I'm going to get yeah. my revenge on Jimbo right now by inflicting the three-fact structure upon you all. Oh. Uh, it's back this week. We have a full complement of, of colleagues of such lethal cunning. I lay number three this week so we can have three facts for the three-fact structure. And James, punished for his disrespect, the disrespect shown to the Beatles... <laughs> who on this very day, according to the Beatles Bible, a great Twitter account that I follow, recorded paperback writer today mm. on this very, very day in 1966. So, uh, when was that? 55 years ago? Fuck me. Anyway, Jimbo, you're going to go first. Three fact structure. You have to impress me with an arcane, unusual or obscure movie fact and hope that I, I don't know it. You have two minutes. Go. Okay. 
an arcane and obscure movie fact. Well, first off, I know you know this fact already because I've already told you it. Second of all, it's a TV fact, Why are you not a film me? fact. What, Third what are you of all, doing? this fact debuted on the <laughs> Superior Pilot TV podcast a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh, the so, love of Zeus. <laughs> so I'm just going to get those caveats out of the way just before we get into this. Wait, so Less caveats and more disqualifications, I would have said. Why couldn't your microphone be the one that's not working this time around? <laughs> Which actually wasn't the, the technical issue uh, at all last week. But anyway, we won't yeah. get into it. No, we won't. We won't. No, because someone, someone, I have, I, I'd given off. I'd, I'd actually thought, you know, I've banged on about the Pilot TV podcast far too much in Empire Podcast. Yes, you, fucking yes, you annoying do. People. Yeah, yes, you I'm fucking going to stop yeah. doing it. And then I was looking through the reviews because I'm, you know, slightly masochistic. And one of them said, I finally listened to Pilot after James's endless shilling for it on the Empire podcast. And it was okay. And there you go. That's a, it's a ringing endorsement there. He's clearly enjoying the Pilot TV fact? podcast. No, it's not. I'm just warming <laughs> I mean, you up. This none is of, all none of out these things two minutes. are my fact. My fact is this: that you will remember. You will remember what we do in the shadows. The popular TV or the popular movie film, I should say, which spawned a uh, popular TV series. Well, correct. What we do in the shadows, the TV series. It's not the only spinoff from what we do in the shadows because there is, in fact, another. There is another. Wellington Paranormal. Indeed, Wellington Paranormal, as oh, produced I this by fact. Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi. Now, yeah. yes, I know, because I have told you this fact. Now, one of the writers from Wellington Paranormal got in touch after we reviewed the show on the Pilot TV podcast. Good Lord. Okay, two minutes up, we're done. And, yeah. and, and he said, he told me that he's a big fan of this podcast and he writes for Wellington Paranormal. His name is Nick Ward at Wood of Kings. And he said that one of the gags in there was inspired by the Empire Film Podcast. There's an episode, I think it's the third episode of season one. Bear in mind, there are three seasons of Wellington Paranormal that have aired in New Zealand, but have only just come to the UK. But there's the third episode of this, and it's called Things That Do the Bump in the Night. And it is when the two detectives, the two detectives, uh, officers Minogue and O'Leary, go to a haunted house. And at one point, at one point, some writing, some scary writing appears on a mirror. Uh, and as that writing comes up, it says, welcome to hell. And then look at it, it goes, <gasps> and it says, Helen and Ray's 20th anniversary, because it's a good gag. And apparently where that came from was hearing you, Chris, say Helen's name in a Northern Irish accent inspired Nick Ward to write that gag. So that mirror gag comes directly from the Empire podcast. So wow. we, we, even us, we hear Helen's name and you with your dribbling nonsense have inspired a gag on a great Comedy TV show. Excellent. I shall now be suing. What's his name? <laughs> You'll be suing Nick Ward for plagiarism. I would suggest that's an indirect uh, inspiration rather than a direct one. In court. But, you know, mm. I can tell you as your lawyer, Chris, that you are not going to win that day. Helen, you're not a you're not a lawyer. You're a barista. I will take no legal <laughs> I mean, advice again, from you. I've I've been through this, but barrister <laughs> and barista, you're very a different jobs. People slide down you? No, no, steady. thank you. Well, steady. Hello. All right. Good fact, Jimbo. Good fact. Hey, I learned something this week. What's what that? was it? Uh, and it is, God help me, it is TV related. Uh, did oh, you yes. know Chris that you're on was... the Pilot TV podcast? <laughs> yes, no. yes. Perhaps I should appear on the Pilot TV podcast and tell you this fact. You um, whilst banging on about Law and Order Criminal Organization or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> the the one that Staber's back for. What's it called? Organized Crime. Anyway, did you know that uh, there was a short lived Fast Times at Ridgemont High um, TV show mm -hmm. that was. Oh, you did? Okay, great. So, Helen, uh, next up. <laughs> <laughs> did you? I did, but like I haven't okay. seen it or anything. But go, So go ahead, tell us more, Chris. I didn't Chris. know, that. Chris. Go on, tell us more. It ran for seven episodes. 
Uh-huh. It starred Patrick Dempsey, McDreamy, um, and a whole bunch of other people. Uh, if, uh, a couple of a couple of the teachers from the the film came back for the show. It was also it also involved Amy Heckerling, who directed a couple of the episodes and produced a couple of the episodes. But Cameron Crowe <laughs> was not involved, and I believe none of the original cast were either. So hmm. there you go. Fast wow. Times at Ridgemont High, short-lived 1980s TV show, spin-off from the popular 1982 Amy Heckerling comedy. Uh, John, it's been a while since you've been in the uh, the podcast virtual booth. Have you got a fact for us? Uh, well, like James, I, I have I have some caveats. You oh know, boy. there are some cynics who might say that it's been a while since I've been on the podcast, and some cynics might suggest that I, I forgot about the fact section. Um, <laughs> some might even say that I, you know, went on IMDb seconds before this recording started. Um, yeah, well, yeah. Uh-huh. some cynics would say you clearly didn't read the text I sent about it <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> How cynical those cynics to are. To those My cynics, God. I say, harumph and hurrah. Um, <laughs> Helen, do you have a fact for the three-fact <laughs> no, structure this week? I've got one. He's going to do it. I've got one. Okay, okay. Here we go. I believe Here we go. Please be Beatles-related. It's not Beatles-related. It is Home Alone-related. Uh, as you know, it's Except one of my all-time favourite films. Of course it is. Jesus Christ. Anyway, yes, it's, go it's, on. It's a forgotten masterpiece that you, you must recognise, Chris. And I mean... Yeah, uh, is it now? It is. Okay. It is. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, it has multiple connections to Goodfellas. This is my fact. So obviously, Ooh. you know, Joe Pesky is the obvious pesky. There. <laughs> he is pesky, but his name's Joe Pesci. Yeah. <laughs> He's quite pesky in that film, isn't he? He gets up to all sorts. Um, all right, Joe Pesci. If you want to be <laughs> accurate, <laughs> accurate about it. <laughs> Uh, he his character Harry was um, Harry. It's Harry. Yeah, Harry. <laughs> oh my god! Let him finish his fact. Let us get through this purgatory. Jesus. <laughs> Harry was originally going to be played by Robert De Niro. That was the original first choice of director Chris Columbus. Strong. He would have killed Kevin though. <laughs> That's the, thing. Yeah. the end of the movie would have been just him stomping Yo. on Kevin's face. Yo. <laughs> Enthusiasm. Yo, you're home alone, fuck. But the Goodfellas um, links don't stop there. The uh, Chris Columbus wanted Joe Pesci to do his How Am I Funny uh, scene from Goodfellas. Literally, wow. like, ripping off the most famous scene from his most famous role. Uh, and they filmed this. They actually filmed this him doing this scene with Marv, played by Daniel Stern, and uh, it got cut. So I'm Ooh. imagining there is, like like Mrs. Doubtfire, as we heard about recently, there is an R-rated version of uh, Home Alone where Joe Pesci is just like, you think I'm funny, you fuck? Which I would very much like to see. Do you guys all know about Joe Pesci's musical role? Like he is a character in a musical? You all know this, right? I'm assuming you all know this. Hmm... Yes, no. but but you go on. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Pesci is a character in the Four Seasons musical because he used to hang out Four with... Four Seasons musical. Yeah, the Four Seasons musical, you know, you the... Uh, Jersey Boys. Jersey Boys, thank you. I was trying okay. to remember the name as I just said this. So basically, Joe Pesci growing up as a kid used to hang out with the Jersey Boys, so with the Four Seasons, as they became, and Frankie Valli. So he is in, as a character, not as an actor, as a character, he is in the Jersey Boys musical. Is he in the film, the Clint Eastwood directed film? I, I don't remember that film at all. No one remembers Literally that film. Literally don't remember that film. I don't know if Clint Eastwood remembers that film. 
Can I can I just apply just the slightest slightest shred of scrutiny to John's fact? Okay, sure. So you say, John, and I realize you read this in a panic fifty seconds ago, and you might just be parodying the first thing you read on the internet without fact checking it in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. But you Surely say not. that Joe Pesci did his. You fucking you you think I'm fucking funny? Fucking hell! What the fuck? Fuck you! You fucking fuck! A scene from uh, I believe it is um, my cousin Finney, uh, and you say he did that in Home Alone. <laughs> Yet Home Alone was released just two and a half months after Goodfellas. Explain yourself. Home Alone two. Lost in New York. Far be it from me to <laughs> say that the trivia section of IMDb.com <laughs> is uh, an unreliable source, um, but you you may have a point. I don't know. You lie and sign yourself to lies. You are a disgrace. You are disqualified from the three-fact structure. How dare you? James I is cast you out! James is also disqualified from the three-fact structure <laughs> for telling me a fact I already knew. Which Woo-hoo! means that this week's winner is already Helen O'Hara. So Helen, <laughs> you know, it's like... Default. <laughs> down, it's like the you're walking down win. the 18th green of Augusta. The crowd, imagine that there's crowds in. You are six shots this ahead. Is, this is cricket, You right? could fuck around on the green to your heart's content and still bring home the green jacket. Helen O'Hara, I give it over to you now. What is your fact this week? And and remember, you could literally just fart into the microphone for five minutes and you would still win this oh, week's three it's fact all structure. Mine to lose, Side isn't it? note, when you win at golf, do they give you clothing? Is this a thing? <laughs> what? Do they the, clothe okay, you? The, the, what, what's your- when you win the Masters, which is the first major of the year, there are four majors in golf, right? There's the, the US, the, the Masters, which you don't is American, need to list them. USPGA, yeah, Ringo I mean- Starr, and George Harrison. Fine. Those are the four majors you can win in golf. The the You win lovely, shiny, glittery trophies in all, all but one of those. When you win the Masters, which takes place in Augusta, Georgia, every single year, the prize is, I shit you not, a green jacket. Do they like give you shoes at one of the other ones? If you if you no, do the equivalent don't. of a golfing grand slam, do you get an entire ensemble? Because that would be helpful. No, you don't. You no. get a green jacket, and the winner also gets to choose the menu for the champions dinner next year. Is it a magic jacket? This kind of feels like the kind of quest reward you get in World of Warcraft. <laughs> like you've got like a plus ten jacket of smiting. Have you? I mean, look, it's very normal. Like you get jerseys when you do the Tour de France. You get a jacket. Really? When you they do give the you sweaters for being good at tennis. Tennis. The Tour de France. <laughs> oh, hang on. What did you say? Oh, <laughs> right, the France. cycling thing. Fine, okay. And I'm not talking like cycling jerseys, not like jumpers, you know. They don't and give you, you get... the little lycra shorts that hug your package. No, presumably because you'd want to choose those yourself. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> oh, this has been educational. Thank you, guys. I mean... yeah, and they don't just hand them down from the previous winner either, the lycra oh, shorts. Oh, that they're would brand be like Yeah. 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 Anyway. Helen, the green jacket is yours. I mean, I've, I've already fallen down a, a Jersey Bulls. Um, Jersey Bulls? Oh, my God. <laughs> God this is awful. Those, al- those lycra shorts are on your mind. I've already fallen down a Jersey Boys uh, kind of uh, hole now, and I'm just sort of reading into that a bit more. So right. he okay. did. So, yes, Joe Pesci does appear in the film. He's played by Joseph Russo, who says funny how in Jersey Boys, the film. Wait a minute. He's played by Joe Russo. Not that one, Joseph Russo. In this case, it's a different, yeah. different one, different one. Right. Um, and what's interesting also is that so Joe Pesci obviously in Goodfellas plays a character based on a real gangster who was called Tony De Simone. I may be mispronouncing that. I apologise to the whole of Italy. And for legal reasons, all of the characters' last names were changed except for Henry Hill. And 
his character changed from being Tony Simone, De Simone to, to Tommy DeVito, mm-hmm. which is the name of one of the four seasons. So it's a whole weird circle there. Anyway, that oh wasn't my, my fact. Oh my God, played but, by Vincent Piazza in the famous and iconic and memorable Clint Eastwood film of which 2014. Which I think we all remember very well and didn't mm. have to refresh our memory on at all. all so right. that's great. Yeah, Jimbo, can you name the four members of the Four Seasons? <laughs> <laughs> can you name one member of Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Helen. I believe Frankie Valli would be the one that hey! I would name. I've actually seen Jersey Boys. I saw it in Vegas, believe it or not. I, like, like That's proper, the perfect proper place it. to see yeah. it. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I tell you what, uh, that Clint Eastwood movie gets a lot of shit, but it's probably the best example of CG yet seen on the big screen. What? When I saw John Lloyd Young in that movie, I thought, there, that's the uncanny valley. Oh. Oh, okay, it's because he was playing he was Frankie, Frankie Valley. Frankie Valley. Was uncanny valley, but with an I instead of an oh. EY. That was, I mean, oh. that was a great joke that didn't need any explanation oh. at all. That was well, just well, fantastic. Um, wow. That's the, uh, that's the three fact structure this week. Um, well done, Helen, for winning it with that incredible fact. I mean, I didn't even mention my fact, so this has done well. I've got one in the one in the hole for next week. Woo. Wait, oh, there's more golf references. Oh, this gosh. is fantastic. <laughs> Helen, Helen, have an article of clothing of your choice on us for being Thanks, good at guys. golf references. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just prada.com. <laughs> James, just send over your credit card number. It'll be James, will use some of that pilot TV cash uh, to pay right. for this. Yeah. Uh, anyway, that is the three fact structure, shambolic load of nonsense uh, once again, but it will be back next week. Oh, yes, indeed, it will be back. Anyway, we're going to barrel straight from the three fact structure into this week's listener question, which isn't actually a listener question, but um, I liked what? it. I saw it on the internet and I liked it, so I nicked it. And uh, it comes from someone who I think occasionally listens to the podcast, so therefore it counts. <laughs> uh, it comes from occasional Empire contributor Daniel Bennyworth Gray uh, at Gray on Twitter, simply Gray, G-R-A-Y, who a couple of weeks ago uh, on Twitter asked, has there ever been a decent dream sequence in a film? Struggling to think of a single example. And then, of okay. course, Twitter did a thing, ratioed the hell out of him and uh, told him that, yes, indeed, there are many examples of decent dream sequences in the movies. We may have done this question in the dim and distant past of the podcast, but you know what? It's time to do it again. So... Folks, is there a decent dream sequence in a film? And if so, yes. what is it? I present to you the whole of Inception. <sighs> ah, I mean, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little <laughs> bit bigger, darling. <laughs> well, you know, but anything, anything like that, there's quite a few. So, so all of, I mean, frankly, all of the Secret Life of Walter Mitty, though I can kind of take or leave that. But all the like great dream sequences, Nightmare on Elm Street films are littered with great dream sequences. The third one in particular is a masterpiece of uh, dream sequences, one of which includes Zsa Zsa Gabor. I mean, who can, who can complain <laughs> of that? Welcome to prime time, bitch. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yes. That was a quote from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, yeah. uh, Dream Warriors, in case people are rushing to cancel me. I really like uh, Dream Warriors. I think it is uh, one of the best, if not the best, Nightmare on mm. Elm Street movie. And the dream sequences are, it, it was a time when the dream sequences became 
gaudy and over the top yeah. rather than being and, quite grubby, which is what well. Freddy's Revenge like they, was. They were yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So there, but there's one in Nightmare uh, on 3, which really still to this day makes me icky, which is the oh, Puppet Master one. Yeah. Oh, oh the, you, when you no. see the shot of his wrists. Oh, God, that's no. nasty. Where Freddy, uh, where Freddy uh, takes a young boy, I think his name's Philip in the movie, and he takes him and he basically turns him into a walking puppet and he cuts the tendons out of his arms and legs and <laughs> yeah. makes him walk around the room. Yeah. And it's just, it's just very, very. Yeah. It's, it's no, no, thank you. Good. Thank you. Uh-uh. No, hard pass. Hard pass. Yes, indeed. I would add to Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Big Lebowski is what condition my condition was in, which is a fantastic mm-hmm. dream sequence. Uh, also, the Judgment Day dream sequence from Terminator 2, which I think is very effective, when Sarah yeah, dreams of the end of the world. Yeah. I think that's, fan- that's fantastic. There's also a James Cameron dream sequence in Aliens, where um, there is. Scorny Weaver mm-hmm. has an alien coming out of her belly. It's effective, that one is. I mean, it's yeah. in, it, it doesn't come across as a cheap scare, because it's quite early in the movie, and it's quite, you know, that could have been a way they went with the film, and that's mm. kind of where they went with the third one, so... <laughs> uh, so what, what makes a good dream sequence for you? Is it something that's surreal? Is it something that's imaginative? Is it something that, is it, you know, are, are you a fan of those fake outs? Horror movies do an awful lot of that. You know, mm. The Aliens one is yeah. a fake out, so it makes you think it's real. All the double fake outs. Yeah. Those, yeah. those fake outs are quite well done. There are a lot that are just tiresome, so yeah. it can be overused. And I think also the fact that it's used a lot now on TV means it's, I think it's been cheapened a bit. I think there's a lot more dream sequences than there used to be in TV. And obviously TV is dreadful and people who do podcasts about it are just the worst. <laughs> Awful. The worst you know, people. So, um, so you have to kind of build that in. I quite like the weirder dream sequences like The Big Lebowski. And um, also we should talk about Dali. You know, I just love the opportunity to talk about Spanish surrealism. And uh, Dali went to yes, Hollywood. tell me more, Helen. <laughs> <laughs> Dali went to Hollywood and did the dream sequences for Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound, which were kind is, of... Um, is that how you pronounce his name? Dali. Salvador Dali. I've been pronouncing it Dali for, for ages. I've been putting the emphasis on completely yes, the this wrong This is, this is Helen being Helen. There's literally a, 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 an accent on the eye. So There's that's an accent. Cool. He says an accent. He's Spanish. Yes. <laughs> oh, God. James and I made the same joke at the same oh, time. Oh, that's I, how bad the- it is. <laughs> that's how bad the joke is. Look at you. Dear Lord. Oh, no. <laughs> um, by the way, if you are ever in um, Barcelona or thereabouts, you can go to the Dali Museum um, in his old house, and it's amazing. It's really cool. So I highly recommend it. But um, yeah, he was called in and he did um, Spellbound for Hitchcock, which yes. has lots of traditional Dali-isms, but also a little bit Dali. of sort of, a little bit of um, Freudianism in there as well. Freudian. And he also, are you going to stop now? And he also <laughs> collaborated with Disney and he Disney. storyboarded a film called Destino. In 1945 and 1946 with a young Disney artist. And then Disney were like, this is never going to make any money. Let's not do this. And it basically was put away for, I think, 48 years until 2003 when they decided to complete this surreal film. And it is now on Disney Plus, should you wish to watch it. It's bizarre. I wouldn't say it's my favourite dream sequence, but it exists. Yeah. Of course, the best Dali fact was that he was going to be uh, the Padishah Emperor in uh, in Dune originally, but But wanted a hundred grand an hour. Yes, I know. Yeah. (laughs) I don't think you pronounced it Dali back then. I would have picked you up in that. Dali. Well, okay, but like, I'm just trying to be accurate now, and it is Dali. Okay. So, uh, yeah. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Uh, John, I know you have, uh, you said you have a well, good answer uh, for this. My mind went to one in particular, uh, and it is, in fact, um, Jim Carrey, or Jim Carrey, as I believe he's, he's called, 
in uh, Dumb and Dumber. Or, or Carrie, which is the actual way you pronounce his name, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> this is your last time in the yeah. podcast for a while, isn't it? I'll see you in six months, guys. Yes, Dumb and Dumber. Oh, yeah, Dumb, Dumb and Dumber. Dumber is a great really one. fun fantasy sequence where he kind of falls asleep while he's driving and dreams of seducing this Mary Swanson, the character he's infatuated with. And he, like, it's just like the most absurd, like, romantic fantasy where he, like, arrives at her house and, like, doves <laughs> appear from behind her. And then he's, like, he's telling terrible jokes to her wealthy friends and, like, lights a fart and then he starts and then he's at a restaurant and just starts fighting waiters for no reason just gets into a, like an absurd kung fu fight and <laughs> starts pummeling this guy's balls it's great <laughs> we have very wow. different definitions of what constitutes greatness but oh my god i love that john who is probably not even probably who is you know he's not quite art house filled assembly but he is the most <laughs> art house of all of us here today in this virtual pod booth that he comes in not with oh i don't know jacob's um, ladder or something <laughs> yeah jacob's ladder or uh talk to her or akira kurosawa's <laughs> dreams which i believe has a couple of dream sequences in it uh here or there scattered around the place see if you can spot them or he's not the one who said spellbound or you know brazil or rosemary's baby no, he goes for fucking Dumb and Dumber, and I love that. I mean, I did also have, I had <laughs> well Mulholland done. Drive on my list as well, which is just like, you know, that's yes. 50% of that is essentially a dream sequence. Is it 50%? Well, okay. you can say. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to go through with a, a stopwatch now. You realise this, but okay. Yes. Um, <laughs> because it, technically speaking, one of the greatest scares in the history of cinema is a dream sequence, right? Which is the, the, the diner bum. <laughs> which sounds like it should be from Dumb and Dumber, but it isn't. But the uh, the, the scary bum mm. at the diner, played by Bonnie Ahrens, who went on to play be the nun in the Nun, um, that's part of a dream sequence, right? It's the from um, bum to nun. My story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So yeah, technically speaking, that is a dream sequence. It's, it's a, one of the two characters. One of them is recounting mm. a dream that he had. And then we see the dream, and then the bum appears at the end of the diner, and... You've got to stop saying bum. They, they, just, they need to change the character name. This is not my fault. Bum. This is the fault of David Lynch, if anything. You know, the scary bum in <laughs> Drive. Oh, my word. This has gone very, very badly indeed. What do you think about dream sequences, though? Do you think that um, we should stop them because they've they we've you know they've they've gone as far as they can go? We've seen enough fake outs now. That this, this is it. Stop it. No, I mean it's just when they serve a purpose. I think when yeah. you have a dream sequence for the sake of a cheap scare, then it's probably not worth doing. But if it drives the narrative or it's sort of drenched in subtext, then sure, you yeah. know, go for it. Mm -hmm. Like something like the Big Lebowski one, it adds texture to it. It's demented. It's surreal, and it's creatively brilliant. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's one of the high points of the film. Um, obviously, Dumbo's pink elephants are objectively terrifying and should never be shown to anyone. So that's uh -huh. a completely different matter. Blade Runner, the unicorn thing. You know, I once you see the final cut of that. Mm, no, no, but to look inside a character's subconscious, isn't it? I, mm. I'm classing that right. as a dream. Okay. All right. Uh, All right. And, you know, that's what gives you the replicant clue. So it's kind of, it's a key plot point there. It's not a cheap thing. It's an important thing. So important, good, cheap, bad. Yeah. yeah thank you for coming cheap. to my Sometimes good when there's balls being pummeled, I think, you know. Or, or Nazi <laughs> werewolves, as in the yes. American Werewolf in London. I love that one. 
I absolutely love the one. I know there are people who who are screaming things like eight and a half, you idiots. Um, and <laughs> they don't know and, us and at all. Vert- do they? Vertigo, you wallies, uh, at the podcast device of their choice right now. And yes, indeed, last week we were talking about the greatest movie hugs. We did forget about the end of Paddington 2 and oh, the end of the Shawshank Redemption and many, many other films. But we always say these things are never meant to be definitive. They're never meant to be exhaustive. They're exhausting, but not exhaustive. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I would say probably my favorite one you would not be surprised to know are from horror films um i don't like the cheap fake out scares where someone wakes up from a dream sequence and then they're still in the dream having said that america werewolf in london is about as good an example of that as you could possibly get because of the gonzo dream nightmare in that in which david played by david norton um his, sees his entire family being butchered by a bunch of nazi zombies who just commit out of nowhere and it's horrible and scary and jolting and violating and violent. And then when he wakes up, Jenny Agutter is his nurse and she goes to the window to open up the the blinds and a Nazi zombie comes out and stabs her. So that's a great, great moment. And I also love the opening of Romero's Day of the Dead, which has a nod to Les Diabolique, where you see the the movie's heroine, Laurie Cordille, who is... She walks towards a calendar on the wall and as she touches the calendar, a bunch of zombie arms come out and paw mm-hmm. at her. It's a great, great moment. Then she wakes up and she's on a helicopter. And uh, I'm going to mention as well, John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, which technically speaking isn't a dream, but is a dream. They're all in this church and they are they all begin to share the same dream, which is this scary vision of a shadowy figure emerging from the church and they can hear something as well on the in in the soundtrack of the dream turns out it's not a dream it is actually a warning from the future that is being beamed back to them from the year 1999 in an attempt to try and an attempt to try and get them to avert catastrophe that will lead to the end of the world so that is a belter that is okay. a belter yep yeah, it's a good one it's a good one already uh anything else any other any more before I mention uh, Top Secret, or should we just move? <laughs> top <laughs> Play secret. my jingle again, Woo! Chris. Let's just talk about Top talking Secret. Talking about Top Secret. Oh, what a film. You know, oh, the, M- the MCU hasn't really done dream sequences, Helen. Uh, there's Thor's dream sequence, I guess, and, and the stuff in Age of Ultron. But, you know, when your main uh, MCU example of something is Age of Ultron, then it's probably not their strongest Hey, point. whoa, oh, hey, back off, oh. H. Voltron. Back off, you. Look, I'm not saying it's terrible. I'm just saying, you know, it's not the exemplar of all we love about the MCU. It's not, but it's pretty damn good. So you back off. All right, um, well, I just mentioned it. Dream sequences, go. You, 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 you hater, you H. Voltron hater, you. Wow. What, what's, uh, what's Thor's dream sequence? Remind me. He's the one who, he sees, um, you know, Heimdall with his eyes gone. Oh, but that's, and... is that a dream sequence or is that? Well, cr- well, James said it is, so... Who's James? I'm James. Pleased to meet you. We've done a few hundred podcasts together. Did you say it was a dream sequence? No, he I said, said anything any- where there's like a hallucination and you're in yeah, the character's anything that taps into the subconscious. Is that a dream sequence? Are we sure, are technically not? allowing that? In so many ways, this podcast is a dream sequence. It's a vision. It's a vision. It's a vision. It's not a dream. Nah. What's well, I'm look. I was there with you, and then he corrected me, and neither of you corrected him. I wasn't him, listening so to I was, him. Well, I know, but you know, that's kind of the job right here. So, Doesn't Morpheus know. in Sandman extend his authority over waking dreams as well as sleeping dreams? And I'm saying he's the definitive authority on this. Let's get him in. 
Let's so, get him in so the show. Just, just yeah. FYI, everybody, James has been reading Sandman recently, and this is going to shape his, his view of things right now. If you haven't read Sandman, highly recommend. If you don't like reading or you know graphic novels, I mean, first of all, try them. And second of all, uh, you mm-hmm. could try the very, very, very good the very, very uh, audible, <laughs> audible adaptation of uh, the first right. half of Sandman. It's really, really good. Yeah. McAvoy was on the show last year. I should have asked him in anticipation of this yeah, question. I should have asked good. him about yeah. whether, you know, his control of dreams extends into the waking realm. Was that what you said, Jimbo? <laughs> that, oh, is, oh, that is right. Yeah, well done. He's um he's a massive nerd as well. So I, I feel like he'd have a good answer for that. And a great baker. And a great baker. Yeah. Mm. He's no Daisy Ridley. No, he was a better baker than Daisy Ridley. I'm just I'm only, I don't watch Bake Off because, you know, it's reality TV, which is the death of culture. But, uh, you Bake know, Off I heard not, about it. Bake Off is not because sometimes they cook so with yeast, which is culture. Oh. So. Look, they quoted Dune on Bake Off. And for that alone, I give it a pass, but only just. All right. On, and on the equivalent of a Hollywood handshake, uh, I think that is pretty much it for, for this dissection of the best dream sequences in movies. As ever, if you disagree with any of our choices uh, or if you have any that we have overlooked, then do let us know on Twitter and who knows, maybe we'll give you a shout out in next week's episode. Before I move on, have any of you ever done that movie thing where you do wake up from a dream or a nightmare just soaking in sweat, screaming no? Has that ever happened to you? No. 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 Sorry, Helen. This is not a nightmare. This is the real thing. <laughs> Shit. This is something I, I can't wake up Actually, for. Actually, I texted you about this. I texted you about this. It's absolutely true that I had a dream the other week that I was on a TV panel show about sequels. Do you remember this, Chris? I texted you about this. I was Did on a TV you? panel show about sequels. It was me and Ben Travis and a former member of the Empire team who doesn't work there anymore. And the former member of the Empire team was insisting. And for some reason, the other panel, the opposing panel, was a boy band. I don't know who they were, but it was a random boy band. You didn't text me about this. I absolutely did. And and the person who shall remain nameless, former member of the Empire team, was insisting we talk about Dune, despite my protestations that Dune, A, isn't a sequel, and B, let's be honest, will probably never get its sequel. Therefore, cannot be in this discussion. And he was having absolutely none of it. And I woke up absolutely incandescent with rage at four o'clock in the morning. So (laughs) fucking furious that the pedant to me was having absolutely none of this. I was too angry to go back to sleep. So yes, that is the closest I've come to waking up in a cold sweat, though it was about, you know, it was film sequel sweat. pedantry and not <laughs> terror. You didn't wake up going, no, you actually woke up going, I think you'll find. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what happened. That is absolutely what happened. That's, that's outrageously James on James subconscious, the worst thing it can possibly conceive is someone being pedantically wrong. <laughs> wrong about Dune. Wrong about Dune. That is my horror. <laughs> Nerb. If you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, you can get in touch with us via one method and one method only right now, which is to get in touch with me on Twitter. I'm at Chris Hewitt. You can either reply to one of my tweets. You can slide into my DMs. You can wait for a panicked shout out of a Wednesday or a Thursday, or you can just simply tweet some nonsense and maybe I'll see it and decide that that was a listener question, uh, which is what we did this week. So thank you so much indeed to at Gray. Was that a deliberate line of duty homage there? By one method and one method only. Like you, you, your Adrian to Dunbar the was strong the there. You were, you were, you were full Ted Hastings at that point. Uh, I have seen pr- approximately forty-five <laughs> seconds of Line of Duty, so no, it was well, not. Chris, you should listen to the TV homage. podcast. We talk about it all the time. No, see, that's not a selling point. <laughs> Anyway, time now for our first guests this week. And uh, we love Cartoon Saloon, which is the Irish animation studio 
that is taking on the big boys of Pixar and DreamWorks Animation and other animation studios of that ilk. And uh, they're, they're based over there in Ireland, so they are in Kilkenny, no less. And um, Wolfwalkers is their latest movie. It's out right now on Apple. It is absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. It did not win the BAFTA last week, but it's still Ooh. in contention for the Oscar. Right. Uh, best anime. <laughs> animated feature Oscar. Thanks, Helen. And uh, Side effect, you know. Yeah, it's all good. And John here, John here, look at him. Look at him, the sixth Beatle, the sixth Beatle himself, John Nugent, uh, spoke to the film's co-directors, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. We had them on a few months ago. Um, They were such fun, such fun. We decided to have them back on again in the run-up to the Oscars. This one's a little bit shorter, I believe, than our usual podcast interviews because John fucked it up. Right, (laughs) here we go. What did you talk about, John? What, did you, what sort of things I, did you talk about? I mean, about we didn't really have time to talk about much. We just got a hellos and goodbyes, and that was that was it, really. <laughs> Genuine. There's part of me, there's a mischievous part of me that wants to edit that, that version. Uh, no, we talked about awards. We talked about BAFTAs. This was, yeah, we talk, We spoke before the BAFTAs happened, so uh, we were talking as if they might win. They didn't actually win in the end, sadly, but um uh, but they were very nice. Tom Moore actually drew. We, this was over mm. Zoom. Tom Moore drew a picture of me as we were speaking, and then halfway through our conversation, he yes. put up a picture of of me, um, which was incredible. I sat next to him at a dinner once before song uh, before the Secret of Kells came out, and they were telling me all about their film, and I was like, "That sounds cool." Wow. I mean, the the huge anecdotes <laughs> just keep on coming. <laughs> Was was there any gossip at all from that that lunch that dinner, Helen? You know, did he did he kill a waiter? Uh, no, I mean he's a vegan, so we just wouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing stuff. Anyway, let's hope that the anecdotes in this interview are just as scintillating as that. Here's Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. Do please enjoy. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to welcome to the Empire Podcast the the co-directors of Wolfwalkers, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. How are you guys? Hey, John. Not too bad, John. Hi. Um, thank you so much for joining. As we as we speak, it's it's the Friday before the Baftas for which you're nominated for Wolf. Yeah. How do you how, how do you feel about it? Are you uh, you excited? We know the competition is stiff, but we're hoping that we might beat the odds and and to take home a Bafta would be amazing. But uh, yeah, just being nominated with two movies from Pixar, like who are like absolutely the masters of uh, animated features. It's uh, great. It's great that it's narrowed down to just the three of us. So that's exciting. And of course, we would love to be there for the ceremony any other year. You know, we'd we'd be able to hop over and put on our tuxes and stuff like that. But sure, everyone's in lockdown. So what can you do? Are you going to be tuxed up in your living room then? How does, yeah. How's it going to work? Maybe from the waist up, we'll be tuxed up. Because <laughs> on, on, on Zoom calls, you can wear whatever you want below. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and then you've got Oscars in the fortnight, which we we, we spoke about briefly. But how, how does how does that work? Is, are you going to be on Zoom for that? What's it looks like? Uh, we're going to be from our local broadcaster RTE. We're going to be in the the TV studios in Dublin. Originally, we were hoping to go to London, and it seems like that's not even possible. So quite disappointed about that, I have to say. But mm. it's still nice to be nominated in such a crazy year. But this is this is Wolf Walkers is your fourth feature film and your fourth successive Oscar nomination. 
I mean, are you, are you surprised and excited each time this happens or you, is this kind of old hat for you now? Is it just never, same old, same never, old? never becomes old hat, John. You, you don't want to drop the ball. You don't want to be the one who doesn't uh, get nominated. And especially for Ross and myself, we were following up on Breadwinner, which I think was a you know a bar raiser within the studio. And uh, we felt the pressure to not you know let the side down but uh sure the pressure just moves on to the next director <laughs> yeah yeah eventually like it's inevitable that some film that comes Nora, out of Cartoon Slave won't get the nomination and then whoever directs that is gonna have to Nora, bear the brunt Nora, Nora Toomey is my uh, partner in the studio and who uh, directed Breadwinner and is directing the next movie she asked me did we want to team up me and her to make a really bad movie just to break the streak <laughs> and take the pressure off all the other directors in the studio yeah I mean I, to be honest, at the rate you're going, I, I think you're going to have a problem there. But um, <laughs> uh, you, is Wolf Walkers a particularly personal film, though? This is one that's set in Kilkenny, which is where the, the studio is based, right? Yeah. I mean, we could literally open the open the windows and we could see things like the castle and, and uh, the place where the stocks are, all those buildings and all those chimneys and everything from just out the window. But it was, it was a little bit of a, a, a kind of an... Uh, a love letter to Kilkenny where we grew up and which supported Cartoon Saloon for for um, for all of its tenure there. But um, I think personally, I think the themes are, are also pretty strong for Tom and myself, like, um, you know, the, the themes of speciesism and, and like empathy and, and like polarization of society and how to overcome that. And all of those kind of themes in Wolfwalkers, they were very personal for us, which is why we, we wanted to tell this story. You know, it wasn't... Um, I moved to Kilkenny uh, as a child from the north of Ireland and we're just seeing the violence again in Northern Ireland. And so it's sad that it continues to be so important to speak to the fact that we need to see past our differences and see our similarities. And that's kind of the message of hope, having a little English girl and a little Irish girl be friends, despite the fact that it's set at the actual time of colonisation, despite the fact that they're being told that the other is the enemy. In fact, Robin's dad is literally killing Maeve's wolves, you know. So the fact that they're able to be friends is sort of the kind of personal message of hope in it, I think. And the world is so polarised now on every level. Um, yeah, I think those are the kind of stories that we want to be telling. Yeah, was it was because it, it is a very specific local story, but you've got these very universal themes. Was that, was, you know, essential to you finding that sort of specific and the universal? Definitely. I think like the fact that Will Collins, the screenwriter, and Tom and myself were, were all Irish middle-aged guys. And here we are trying to tell a story that's, that should be able to be understood in, in any country in the world by any gender, by any person, you know, of any age. Um, like we really had to try and think about like, okay, we're telling a, a uniquely specific Irish story, but really it has to be accessible on so many levels. So, um, so I think having like such an international crew working on Wolf Walkers definitely helped. Like I think of, of all the teams across the three countries where it was made, um, you know, that all European countries were reflected in that. And we had people from Brazil and from North America and all, you name it, like uh, New Zealand and Australia everywhere. And so I think each of them brought this kind of universal universality to it. And if there was anything that was too specifically Irish and, and people couldn't understand it, we were pretty quickly told about it, you know, and we'd have to broaden it out and 
be sure to not or, make it too parochial. Or sometimes we would sort of leave it in, but just make sure there was another explanation elsewhere as well. That's something I like to do because I like that about, say, the Ghibli movies, where sometimes there's something in it that does go over my head because I'm not Japanese, but I'm not. I don't miss the overall story. You know, I don't miss, and I like the fact that there's something to investigate or show me something I don't know about. So I do think that there is universality in the specific, and certainly Will Collins has always been really good when we work on him as a writer to look for the truth at the heart of it no matter where the folklore is from there's usually a human truth that you can kind of pull out of it so yeah. that was something we were doing too. I mean yeah Maeve, Maeve says a few words in Irish yeah. uh, throughout the film but I think for anyone who doesn't understand Irish you can still get what she means and it isn't yeah. crucial to the story and yeah. you know if you're interested you could probably look it up and find out what she actually says later that's pretty much what I meant yeah yeah uh, Tom, you mentioned Studio Ghibli there. How do you feel about that? You know, you're constantly being called the Irish Studio Ghibli. How do you, how, I mean, it's I'm almost loath to bring it up. It's not the worst comparison, obviously, but do you feel like it's a little reductive of what it is? Now? It, it's lovely to be compared to the Japanese cartoon saloon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it, it's an honor, Miyazaki wishes he could. Yeah, yeah, the Japanese Tom Moore Miyazaki. Um, no, I mean, uh, come on, what a nice comparison to be made. And they're definitely... Um, inspirational to particularly Ross and myself the fact that uh, Miyazaki and Takahata you know always focused on these themes that were you know very close to our heart like environmentalism and and those kind of things and also the fact that particularly Takahata was very restless and playing with different styles and keeping hand-drawn animation alive in the face of everyone saying let's get into CG but on the other hand I think our you know, we're coming from a different place and we're speaking from a different generation to possibly um, a different audience. And definitely the studio itself is bigger than those influences. And there's directors and animators and artists and cartoon saloon from all over the world. So you're going to see more diversity coming from the studio. That's probably going to open us up into different comparisons. Hopefully yeah. still as positive as that, because you couldn't do better than being compared to Ghibli, I don't think. Yeah. What, what what have you got coming out? I know you've got um, my father's dragon from from Nora to me this year. That's right. It's, yeah. um, but have you got other other projects sort of cooking in the background? Oh, so many! The studio has never been bigger, and we have a, a partner studio here in Kilkenny called Lighthouse Studios that we co-own with Mercury. And so between Lighthouse and Cartoon Saloon, we've added a hundred people to the crew wow. during lockdown. So there's over four hundred people now living and working in uh, Kilkenny from all over the world, which is amazing. But they're all working from home, which is a bit strange hopefully we can all get back in the studio again soon but yeah Nora has um, my father's dragon which is the most epic thing we've ever done it's huge and it's looking great and uh, we also have a series for Apple that's based on like Greek and Irish and Norse mythology and it's directed by Morris Joyce who's like a an old hand of Irish animation going back to the, the days of the Teenage Mutant Turtles being made in Ireland <laughs> so that's cool and then Jeremy Purcell who's been with us since the beginning is directing a feature film um, based on our Netflix series Puff and Rock so okay. that's that's going to be lovely and then there's like several uh, shows in development and uh, Louise Bagnell is developing a feature film. So it's phew, busy times. And in the meantime, are you writing acceptance speeches? Are you 
getting that ready. <laughs> Never write acceptance speeches. It just jinxes it. I hope someday to be caught off guard and have to come up and say something that embarrasses me for years to come because I didn't <laughs> expect to win. But it, generally so far, I haven't had to worry about acceptance speeches. <laughs> Well, we've got our fingers crossed for you uh, for the BAFTAs and the Oscars. Uh, yeah, I think it couldn't be a more deserved winner. But, um, Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Sean. Uh, yeah, gents, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Perfect Thank timing. You. Okay, so that was Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. And fingers crossed that they do better at the Oscars than they did at the BAFTAs. The BAFTAs happened on mm. Sunday night. What happened? Well, it was um, pretty much as expected. I think what was good this year about the BAFTAs is that the nominations felt much, much less than normal, like they were trying to predict the Oscars. You know, it felt like a genuine celebration of British cinema as well as, you know, cinema from around the world. So I was really, really encouraged by the lineup going into it. I think the actual winners are probably much more in line with what we're kind of expecting from the Oscars. So, you know, big wins for Nomadland in film, actress and director. Um, Anthony Hopkins won for The Father, which I think took him by surprise because he was in the next room painting (laughs) when he won and wasn't on the Zoom for the ceremony at all. And then heard his family going nuts, thought somebody had, you know, scored a whatever in whatever sport and no got, it turned got out one to be of him. the jacket things Helen. yeah green one jacket things what one man can shoot another man can shoot in terms of golf, <laughs> golf. but there were there were local wins um um bookie back won for the fantastic rocks which was wonderful um promising young woman one outstanding british film a couple of more surprising things. Um, his house, by the way, we should mention one outstanding debut by a British writer, director, or producer. So it was it was good. I mean, original score went to Soul, which I think is probably how the Oscars will go as well. But I do think there's room for the Oscars to go in a completely different direction with animation because they went for Soul. They probably will at the Oscars. But I mean, come on, Cartoon Saloon's been nominated four times now at the Oscars. It's it's time for a win. Um, this was actually its first BAFTA nomination, which I thought was a surprise. So maybe that's the chance uh, it needs. Well, fingers crossed. When's the Oscars? Two weeks' time? Yeah, about that. Mm. Yeah, sounds right. Excellent stuff. Excellent stuff. Well done, Mr. BAFTA. Or Mrs. BAFTA. Uh, or Mr. and Mrs. BAFTA. Or just the whole BAFTA family. Or well the done. Reverend and Dr. The, BAFTA. Yes. I mean, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. We, it, there's no way of telling. Um, anyway. Well done, BAFTAs. All the BAFTAs. Uh, some good casting news happened in the week just past. Cool. Uh, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg is a huge fan of Hawaii Five O. I've always said it. He thought himself this week. Book him, Dano. Oh no, because oh, he's no. cast Paul Dano as his dad mm. uh, for his upcoming film, which is um, about Steven Spielberg's childhood of sorts, but it kind of is, kind of isn't. Yeah, semi-autobiographical, so yeah. right? Yeah. Yes. So yeah, so it's Seth Rogen as his uncle, and is it Michelle Williams as his mum? Yes. This is, I mean, this is a good cast. I feel like I'd watch that even if it wasn't about Spielberg. But the fact that it is, is a bonus. Did we talk last week about the fact that Phoebe Waller-Bridge has joined the next Indiana Jones film? No, in fact, that's where I was heading next, after ah. this. Mm. So yes, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to be in Indiana Jones 5. That's exciting, isn't it? That is genuinely exciting. Indiana Jones 4. Sorry, my mistake, my mistake. Indiana Jones 4, Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to be in the fourth Indiana Jones film, which comes a full 32 years after the last one. Wow. Yes, the last crusade, wow. the yeah. last yeah. Indiana Jones film. So lots of questions, you know, no no answers, but, you know, James Mangold is writing and directing that movie. 
Uh, it's going to have Harrison Ford in it. Uh, I think someone said on Twitter he's going to be 80 by the time it either comes out or starts filming. I think it'll be 80 by the time it comes out because it's, it's scheduled to come out wow. uh, in 2023, I believe. So that's that's a hell of a thing. A hell of a thing indeed. Uh, John Williams, who is 195 years old, uh, is going to come back and uh, score the movie as well. But we don't know anything else about it. We don't know when it's set. We don't know what it's about. We don't know who Phoebe Waterbridge is playing. We don't know whether she's going to be looking at the camera. Who knows? But speculate your little hearts out now. Do it. I think it'll be set in the... What would that make it? Like the 70s? Well, maybe, because if you take the gap between that fan fiction film that came out in 2008, which was set in mm. the 1950s, mm. and now, so by okay. the time it comes out, uh, it will be, let me just see when it is coming out, uh, July 29th, next year. Oh my God, right. it's actually next year, July 29th, 2022. So it'll be 14 years between Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and whatever this one's going to be called, mm. right? So in real and if 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 the indie movies proceed in real time, then this will be what 1970, 1969, something like that. Hmm. Am I right in that? So, what are you uh, like? What are we talking? Summer of Love? Or are we talking kind of you know Nixon era paranoia thriller? It's just I don't know. Somebody on Twitter I saw um, speculated that if you go by Indiana Jones's. Um, actual birth dates as is canon mm -hmm. in the films then this film is technically set in 77 which would mean wow. uh, Indiana Jones could go see Harrison Ford in Star, Star Wars. Wars which That's would be amazing. an interesting crossing of the streams I how are we figuring that out? I don't know. There's obviously some sort of passport at some point where his his you know birth date is. Oh, uh, oh, they're figuring out if he's the same age as Harrison Ford is, yes, then therefore exactly. it'll be set yeah, yeah, in 1977. Yeah. All right, yes. okay, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a, I could get a little bit more on board with that uh, that concept. Uh, that would mean he was born in 1897. Is that like right? That, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. Like but here's here's the wrinkle. Here's the Spaniard in the works. There are eight years. Eight years spanned Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, right? And yet there's only two years in movie time between them. So what I'm saying is, and this is a very, very high concept, so you're going to bear with me here, that movie time may not be the same as real time. Wait, Let me try and explain it to you. <laughs> time in movies sometimes can pass oh, a little Chris, more slowly than time in real time. Don't make me start the Spider-Man Homecoming discussion again. I can't bear it. Let's just <laughs> <laughs> let's just assume yeah. um, that they can do whatever the hell they want. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I mean, people age differently in the olden days. Yeah, they do. Uh, and the by which days. I mean 50 years ago. They <laughs> yeah. aged completely differently. People looked 80 when they were so. 50. Yeah. So, you know, the, the world is their oyster. My point is, he might be there. This might be about the Beatles, that's what I'm saying. And we might be back to our, our old pals, the Beatles. And that means that Indiana Jones is the fifth Beatle. Oh my God, is that the name of it? <laughs> Indiana Jones and the fifth Beatle? Yes, okay, please. That is, okay, I'm just going to suggest something right now. That should be our yes. canonical name for it for the next few months until they actually announce what the hell it's called. They won't get a better title than that. I don't think so. I, no. I don't see any way that they could. Indiana Jones and the Octopus's Garden. <gasps> oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Anyway, 
very excited about that. Uh, moratorium, by the way, someone complained, and they are absolutely right to complain about us on the podcast saying things like, we are here for that, uh, fully on board. I am there for that and mm. and such things. And that is, you're absolutely right, who, uh, name the person who shouted at me. That That's right. true. But also, like, we literally will be there for that because it's, you know, our job. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's a it's a factual thing that we're saying, um, but also mm. an expression of, you know, the fact that, that won't be the worst day of our jobs. So no. why why you know, why was this a bad thing to say? I'm confused. We, we probably overuse it. over familiarity, mm. and we yeah we do overuse phrases like that. And you know, sometimes no, I like you, that phrase. I'm here for it. Really, I'm fully on board with you not being here <laughs> yeah. for it. But what can you do? All I, all I know is that sometimes when I say something like that, I'm like, oh, oh I say that a lot. And I try and stop myself from saying it, but then, you know, I'm very, I've yeah. got a very limited imagination and an even more limited vocabulary. So really, I'm kind of, do? I'm locked into it. There's nothing I can do. Speaking of things that we're super on board with and here for. Fully um, here for that. Fully here for Fast and the Furious 9 trailer. Yes. Which How dropped exciting. yesterday. And uh, look, I said this on Twitter, but I uh, I absolutely mean it with every fibre of my being and it 100% it describes what I did. I did cackle insanely <laughs> to the point where my sister came running downstairs going, what's happening? Um, and I did clap to myself as I watched this trailer. I mean, look, it just, it did genuinely make me cackle and um, I, I cannot wait for this big, stupid film, <laughs> which could not make less sense if it tried. John, do you like the Fast and Furious movies? I absolutely. You're Mr. Arthouse. I'm not Mr. <laughs> Arthouse. When did this start? I, I look. Phil's gone. We need someone. You need someone to fill. No, fill the fill. I I absolutely fucking love Fast and Furious. It's um. I think I was one of the only people who liked Hobbs and Shaw. Like that's how much I'm in for these mm. films. This trailer look was unbelievably <laughs> good. I mean. At the end, it's sort of implying that they go to space. I think they, they've sort of hinted at it, but they're literally in a car with rockets <laughs> and they've got like stupid like space suits. And why are they still in a car? You know, like get in a spaceship if you're going to space, guys. Yeah, this one looks so stupid. So stupid. Oh. I was amazed at how much magnets seem to be playing a, a lot part of magnet in this film. More than just mm. the magnet yeah. plane, like it seems to be like a a, a major plot point. Like magnets, yep. are- magnet cars, magnet trucks, yeah. just magnets. Magna Carta. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. good. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> oh, I just, I just, I'm, I'm super. I'm so amused just thinking about it. I just can't. I can't even. The fact that you know, apparently, like people can just like break down walls with their bodies just crashing mm. through them because that that's a thing that happens. And you know that the laws of physics really genuinely don't apply. I mean, I, I interviewed um, Justin Lin about this a few months ago, and and quite recently for the for the magazine, and, and he was sort of saying. You know, you can break the laws of physics, but you can't break the laws of character. And I respect that he thinks that. Um, but I mean, we've never heard a hide nor hair of another Toretto yeah. brother. And suddenly here's John <laughs> Cena. I'm not complaining. I'm just mentioning yeah. that also, this is a thing. Han Solo died and they had a whole vengeance thing about that. So what's going yes, on? But, but that was back when, you know, he was the worst man in the world, uh, Jason Statham's character. And now he's like buddy buddies Descartes with Shaw. all of them. Yeah. So- Only known as Ian Shaw, <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they retcon from movie to movie. I, I said on Twitter already that I want John Cena's character to be called retcon because it's the only <laughs> way he could possibly get away with it. Yeah. And, and also we haven't even mentioned like Charlize Theron's ball cuts. 
What? Oh, what no. is happening with that what? haircut? She's gone full Joan of Arc. Crime oh. against hair. It really it is. is. It's um, awful. Yeah. That just shows how, how evil she is as she thinks she can get away with that. <laughs> it, you know, only the Beatles could get away with that. I'm on a real Beatles trip this week. I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I have to say this. I, I'm, oh, I'm not here for this. And I'm fully, I'm not fully on board for this. I am very, very, <laughs> I am dribbling with anticipation over this movie. <laughs> That's an image I'm never going to get out of my brain. Catastrophically, monstrously (laughs) stupid. And I cannot, I cannot wait to see it. There's a moment in the trailer where Dom Toretto goes, you know, we've been on several missions. Tell him about the honey mummy. And you go, well, you shouldn't have done any missions because you're car thieves. Why why, why are you even doing a mission in the Uh, first place? It was so long ago that, that, that whole origin, you know, know. it's, uh, this is one of the reasons, right? Can I just like, just go off on a tangent for a minute. This is one of the reasons that prequels make no sense because this is the kind of thing that happens. You know, one minute you're a car thief, you're stealing some DVDs. They send in the FBI to investigate. The next minute, you know, you're driving a magnet plane into the stratosphere. And, you know, no single prequel could ever describe no. that narrative arc. So this no. is why you just shouldn't try. You should just, you know, make a stupid sequel instead. Uh, oh, I cannot wait. I cannot wait, Chris, to high five you from a socially safe distance uh, in the cinema while we watch this. It's going to be amazing. It is going to be amazing. And, uh, you know, I'm fully on board for how amazing it's. Oh, that I'm. I'm fully on board for how here I am for it. That's that's okay. Are you happy now? You happy now? Also, we should just say uh, it's very good to see the return of Corona to this franchise. Not the <laughs> not the infectious disease, but the the beer brand. Um, yeah. The, you know, Budweiser yes. was in Fast Eight, as we all remember. Yes. And people were very shocked. That was the real. That was the real problem with Fast Eight. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Two other trailers came out this week. Uh, the final trailer for Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead, which looks mm. like. I, listen, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. Once again, I'm. You're excited for this film, are you? With not? anticipation for oh, this, no. this film, yes. And also, uh, here's a big surprise: the, the trailer for Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard. Uh, came out and I really didn't like the first movie at all but this one actually made me the trailer alone for this made me chuckle a couple of times okay cool uh, and Helen clearly you've you know you love it so much your squadcast name this week is inspired by it I didn't actually watch it I was frantically looking at the list of news ha. stories trying to think of a squadcast name I'll be honest but I intend to watch it I you know was mildly amused by the first film so hurrah okay you're an absolute disgrace. But anyway, so it's uh, Ryan Reynolds is back, Sam Jackson's back, Salma Hayek is back. Um, and the funny conceit this time is that Ryan Reynolds' bodyguard, who's the world's best bodyguard, is uh, coerced by Sam Jackson, who's the world's best hitman, and Salma Hayek, who is Sam Jackson's wife, who is the world's best something. And they go on a crazy mission together, but Ryan Reynolds has been told specifically by his therapist not to get involved in any action shenanigans and so he's always trying to like find talk his way out of these situations whilst Sam Jackson and Salma Hayek are going to shoot first and ask questions well never quite frankly uh, but yeah looks like it could be decent fun perhaps the the Army of the Dead trailer is very cool it's uh, cut to that song that is famous and people know was it The Gambler what's it called anyway it's cut exactly to the music. Look, I know the song. I don't know the name of the song is what the I'm saying. The song that's famous and people know. That's, that's a classic. I, I like that I think it's one. called The Gambler. you got to know when to fold. Know when to hold them. Know when to fold, right? Yes, it's The Gambler. Kenny Rogers. Yeah. Kenny, like, yeah. Rogers. Kenny Rogers. Okay. Yeah. So it's cut to the song. It's 
cut brilliantly to the music, which is kind of what you'd expect from Zack Snyder. Um, mm-hmm. It has a zombie white tiger in it, which mm-hmm. suggests some very unfortunate things about, you know, any owners of zombie of white tigers in Vegas. I I have questions about its zombies, who seem to be more kind of I don't know Mad Maxian. Uh, outcasts than mm-hmm. your traditional undead, um, ah. but it certainly looks like it's going to be heavy on the casualties. All those so. questions, Helen, will be answered if you read my feature on Army of the Dead in the new issue of Empire, which we'll get to in just a few minutes. But Hurrah. it is exciting. I answer those questions. I answer them exclusively. Probably. Uh <laughs> couple of things to talk about in terms of COVID's impact on the film industry. And yes, this is very, very somber news indeed, which has reached us from the States. So last week, or this week rather, it was announced that the Pacific Theatres chain is going to close immediately. It's not going to come back. Uh, it's not going to reopen its doors. And they own, I think, hundreds of locations across the States, uh, including one I go to frequently. Uh, whenever I'm in LA, I, I go to the Grove quite a lot. I've seen many, many films at the Grove. It's where I last mm. saw Avengers Endgame in a in a movie theater. Um, and I went to the Cine Ramadome last time I was in LA. It was amazing. I've never been, but yes, super but cool. They also own the ArcLight, which is a, a more art housey. John would love it. Art housey uh, chain of theaters in the states. There's a very, very famous one uh, in in Hollywood that was right by on Sunset, right by uh, Amoeba. Records. Amoeba That's has where since the Cinerama relocated Dome is as well. Yes, but I've never actually been to the Cinerama Dome. I've never been. I yeah, I basically went to whatever was showing there that day, which, as I remember, was something not great. I think it was Ready Player One, um, but I literally just wanted <laughs> to be in the in the theater. <laughs> so there you go. It wasn't. I'm not saying it was their best show ever, but it's a very cool screen. So I oh, hope that someone yeah somehow reopens this because it's it's a real piece of cinema history. Yeah. And uh, so this is very, very sad. The Arclight's closing, Pacific Theatres is closing, and Twitter was awash with people recounting their Arclight memories. Arclight in particular, I think, really hit people mm. hard. That Arclight, which is a great chain uh, in, in the States. I've only been a few times to the Arclight, uh, weirdly enough. Uh, it's where I saw Hot Rod uh, in 2007. So I will always have a soft spot for that place. And uh, after I came cool out, beans. I remember it was me, Nick, James White, and we went with Mark Stephen Johnson and we came out afterwards and Kevin Smith was there and Mark knew Kevin. And so we wandered over and had a lovely chat in the foyer with Kevin Smith, who was there with, with his daughter, Harley Quinn, to go and see something else. And we had just seen Hot Rod, which blew my mind. And then I met like a famous person. So I just thought it was like, is this what it's always like at the Arclight? <laughs> you know, if you come here, there's going to be a famous person in the foyer. Is this the fun in the foyer that I've been promised? Um, so that was my my kind of re- main recollection of it. And I, I think the last film I saw there was The in- Infiltrator with Brian Cranston. <laughs> so, you know, you win some, you lose some. But uh, hopefully, hopefully, someone will come in and save it. I know there was mm. talk this week about whether a consortium of very rich Hollywood types could come together to to buy either individual venues or maybe the whole chain. But what do you what do you think of that? Yeah, I mean it does feel like it's a it's a city full of very wealthy film-loving people. Surely there is enough uh there's enough willpower for it to continue. You really hope so. I've never had the 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 pleasure unfortunately of visiting these places but uh it it is it is quite sort of disquieting news isn't it it does feel like this is the real you know cinemas are really taking the brunt of the past year um and a lot of especially the smaller chains are 
are really feeling it, really feeling that pinch, which, you know, only makes me more desperate to go back when they open next month. So absolutely. Cannot wait. May 17th in this country. I, for one, I'm going to be putting my bum on a seat and pointing my face towards the screen. Uh, I don't care what I see. It could be Ready Player One and I wouldn't care. Wouldn't care. But yeah, it's very, very sad indeed. And I have to say before that, we also got the news that Top Gun Maverick was was being pushed back. And in fact, a whole bunch of Paramount movies also got pushed back. So Mission Impossible 7 got pushed back uh, into next year. Mission Impossible 8 is now going to be 2023. Basically anything with a Tom Cruise in it is being pushed back. (laughs) And I do wonder, this news preceded the news about Arclight and Pacific Theatres, but I do wonder if studios maybe knew that this announcement was coming and perhaps thought, well, you know, that's just push this movie back because I think they want Top Gun Maverick and Mission 7 and 8 to be seen on big screens and not on streaming services and not on your iPad or your iPhone. What do you guys think? Is there, is there something in that or is it just is it just a lovely case of quinky dink? Look, I, I think there there is a... It's the same thing we had last year, although with with um, less certainty, I think at that point, or less hope uh, at that point, um, which is that you know nobody wants to be the first big film out and the first sort of experiment um, as the film as the cinemas reopen and and people perhaps aren't still haven't got their sort of twelve week uh, window yet and and aren't feeling a hundred percent certain in in their vaccine. I would hope that. This will be different this time, that we will not mm. see so much hesitancy and that people will be a bit readier to go back uh, once we are all vaccinated. And obviously in the US in particular, and a little bit less so at the moment, we're beginning to flag a bit in this country, but we are still doing well in terms of vaccines. So hopefully that's going to change the picture. But you know, if you are looking at a global release, I understand why you might you know, still be pushing back to next year and, and giving those vaccines a chance to get to everyone. And it's looking like that's going to take a while. So yeah. I, I get where they're coming from. I understand the hesitancy, like we've we've discussed, you know, months ago. These are very, very expensive films. They need to make a lot of money in the cinema to kind of justify those enormous costs. But we all just want to go back to the cinema and we want our cinemas to be there when when we do. So hopefully yep. there will be some kind of balance that we can all strike. Darn Tootin. Darn Tootin. Uh, maybe the answer is to have Tom Cruise personally vaccinate people as they go into the cinema. You know what? I, I believe he could do it. I and believe he could do it. I think I think that could work. Uh, if if only it didn't take several weeks for the vaccine to take effect fully. Damn it! Cruise will find a way. Yeah, Cruise will find a way. <laughs> Whilst probably parachuting from space. Time to do one last quick thing in the movie news section, which is to plug the hell out of the new issue of Empire, which is on sale right now. As we're recording this, it is new Empire Day. It is very, very exciting. The new issue of Empire is hitting the stands. New stands. Good news agents, evil news agents, digital news agents, all news agents. It's hitting them wherever they are. And it's a cracking issue, isn't it, folks? Yes, very much so. Great. Thanks, John. Mine hasn't arrived yet, and I'm genuinely so excited to read it because I think it's a fantastic cover. And I can say that because I have no part in creating it. So well done, you guys who actually, you know, do that stuff. Yes, well done, people. Uh, I also have no part in creating the cover. Uh, But the cover is, it is Tom Hiddleston, our old pal Tom Hiddleston. He is back, back, back after a bit of a hiatus. Uh, He is back as Loki Odinson. To, you know, to give him his full mailing address name, and um, 
he is back as Loki in Loki, which is a Disney Plus show, which is going to be out in June 11th. Uh, I've been telling people July, so whoops. <laughs> OK, I hope that's not the uh, I hope I got the date right at the end of the feature because uh, it's a cracking issue. Uh, I should say I wrote quite a bit of it, but if you skip those parts, it is a cracking issue. So our cover feature is a big old sit down interview with Tom Hiddleston. Uh, he and I on Zoom chatting for a good three hours or so about his career, his life as Loki, his path to big screen stardom and everything that came after that. Uh, And it is a cracking read. But also in the features section as well, I'll talk about the things I wrote and then we can talk about the good stuff. Uh, So Army of the Dead also. Uh, I was on set of Army of the Dead in Atlantic City back in 2019. Spoke to Zack Snyder, Deborah Snyder, most of his cast, the ones that hadn't been eaten anyway, uh, and then did loads of catch-up interviews with them over Zoom recently. Dave Bautista, Ella Purnell, Tignit Harrow. And so that's an exclusive story about the uh, what I think would be the year's best Zack Snyder movie. I'm tremendously excited about his return to action horror with this film. And last but not least... Yes, we didn't know Top Gun Maverick was moving back because we have a big old feature about the young guns, the the brand new recruits that Tom Cruise would be training in Top Gun Maverick. Uh, so we have the likes of Miles Teller and Monica Barbaro and Jay Ellis, the brilliantly named Greg Tarzan Davis and uh, Glenn Powell. Uh, and uh, who else? Who else is in there? Bill Pullman's son as well. Oh, He's in there. Lewis hey. Pullman. Yeah, so it's a really, really... Uh, fun feature. Right, that's enough of the stuff I wrote. Uh, unreadable swill that I wrote. What about uh, you guys? Anything else? What What else is in the in the old... Is the Nicole Kidman Gods Among Us in there? I believe it is. Hurrah, I wrote that. So that's just a look back at her career and, and what she's doing and my argument that she's way more daring than people give her credit for. She is. She is. I was very lucky to be a part of the Attack the Block 10-year reunion, which is very exciting. Um, I sat down with Joe Cornish and John Boyega and the rest of the gang. We talked about that film. It's such a good film. I rewatched it again recently and it is really holds up. My God, it's great. Um, and we had a good old natter about that film and yep. its legacy. And I also spoke to Sung Kang, aka Han Solo, as we mentioned from Fast and Furious about his unlikely return. Uh, we speak mm-hmm. to the Inside Number Nine guys about their new series. But yeah, there's loads of great stuff. Uh, so we spoke to Ray Fisher. Uh, Hannah Flint spoke to Ray Fisher and uh, talked about his experience in Justice League. But also, it's a Ray Fisher profile. So we actually get to know about him, what makes him tick, where he comes from, what his background is when it's not a big old green screen. Uh, and that's a fantastic feature also. Uh, we also interviewed Barry Jenkins about his new project, the Underground Railroad. A couple of last things as well. So we have a fantastic feature on George Romero looking back at his legacy, including some unmade Romero projects that obviously never made it to the big screen. Uh, in my section, we talked to Pete Doctor uh, about how he comes up with all those incredibly crazy ideas for Pixar. There's a Tom Hanks ranking, which I think will put the Tom Hanks cat amongst Tom Hanks pigeons. <laughs> that one has already set some tongues wagging. Um, mm-hmm. The number one choice is quite a surprise, but I couldn't stand in the way of the votes. That's what Team Empire voted for. So I couldn't change it. I could not change it. But anyway, it is 
a cracking issue. Fantastic, fantastic issue. Uh, it's available right now in all good, evil and digital news agents. And I strongly urge you to go out and buy a copy or your life will be empty, worthless and meaningless. Time now for a second guest this week, and it is the star of the movie that I have probably seen more than any other film. No, not Avengers Endgame. No, not a Star War. No, not Event Horizon or Top Secret, but Police Academy. Oh yes, Police Academy. Whenever I was a kid, I saw that movie loads. And Steve Gutenberg as Carrie Mahoney rocked my world. And in fact, he rocked Hollywood's world for a period of about five or six years in the late 80s when he was the star of things like Cocoon and Three Men and a Baby and Cocoon the Return and Three Men and a Little Lady and four Police Academy movies as well. Since then, I think it's fair to say that he perhaps hasn't hit those heights, but he is still very, very much a an actor of note and an actor much in demand. And uh, he pops up in a movie called Original Gangster, which is available now on video on demand. And that gave me the chance to talk to him on Zoom recently, and we had a good old natter about a great many things in the presence of his adorable dog, Gracie. So here you go, me talking to Steve Gutenberg. Enjoy. We are delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by the one and only Mr. Steve Gutenberg. How are you, sir? Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. <laughs> uh, you covered all the bases there, Steve. I like it. Yeah, I got my my little buddy, Gracie. She's here, too. Uh, so don't use any foul language. You know, don't say anything bad about canines. <laughs> <laughs> no bad word about canines has ever escaped my lips. Honestly, have you have you been a dog person all your life? Yeah. Yeah, we've had dogs since I was a little kid. Uh, we've had mutts, you know, mixed breeds. We've had schnauzers, boxers, goldens. Labradors, now a King Charles Spaniel. Oh, uh, Rot, Rot, I had two Rottweilers for for a time, for many years, fifteen years. But this little this little one, I I really uh, I I didn't. My wife wanted the dog, and I I hadn't had a dog in ten years. I had a golden who I just had such a great relationship with this little this guy. Yeah. So anyway, my wife said she wanted to get the dog. Then I'm like, all right. And I kind of didn't think that I would bond with the dog. It's really the, my wife's dog. But man, I just fell in love with this little girl. Just crazy, weird, weird. I, you know, <clears throat> when I'm out doing something, I'm thinking about, well, I can't wait to see the dog. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the, the dogs choose you, Steve, isn't that, isn't that right? Well, you know. She she probably looked at you and you know those big brown eyes of hers just melted your heart and that's it and they latch onto you and and you have no choice no matter if you're a uh, feeling caring person you um, that's the thing that I notice about these dogs is that they give what the world cannot give is pure attention and love and um, and relationship and. What we humans do is we build civilizations, and within those civilizations, there's politics, and within the poli- politics, those are our relationships. That's why it's when I remember when I was a kid, I didn't know that anyone had a bigger apartment or house than we did. 
I never thought about that. I never thought about what does his father do? His, his father has a better job than that man's, that kid's father. Or our car isn't as nice as another car. Or mm. I never thought about those things. And as you get older, it, you start to get these Klingons, you know, it, on you that, you know, s- selfishness, jealousy, envy, mm. uh, unbridled competitiveness and um you lose that most valuable thing is the pureness and so that's what i think what the dogs do yeah to even the the biggest villain in the world he comes home to his little dog his dog the dog doesn't know that he's a villain you know <laughs> dog loves him yeah is that something that uh, that you almost you went through yourself i mean you 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 when you joined the the acting profession did you get an insight into that into that world? You know, the the idea of oh, well, that person's trader is bigger than mine, or I want something in my contract that's better than that person's. Is that something that you you've experienced your, yourself or or witnessed yourself? I've witnessed it. I feel it zero. I the, the accoutrement don't really mean much to me. It, it's I, I go by the Jack Nicholson rule. Script, director, co-stars, subject matter. Then comes money. Then comes location. The size of the trailer, all that stuff. I get it because, you know, that guy has a uh, big screen TV. I'd like, a, I'd like to watch, you know, The English Patient too, you know, during lunch. Yeah. I understand that. But it never, it, it, it's never be, it's never been anything that's important to me because I go home at night. I don't live in that trailer. I'm really there for the work and the check, like most most actors, you know. Unless you're doing it just for the work and there's no check, and that's that's a beautiful experience too. How many times has that happened in your in your career where the where the work has superseded everything else? Oh, a lot. I've been very fortunate. Yeah. Really, very, very lucky. I was thinking about it the other day. I think about it often, but just last night I was driving back from Arizona, where I'm visiting my family, my parents, my sisters, my sister and brother-in-law, and uh, my little niece. Um, and I was thinking about, uh, you know, the experience of acting, and the experience of good acting. The money, interestingly, falls to the side because you know that the the asset is the work. Mm. That's what's going to bring you the money. Mm. So you can buy food, fill your refrigerator. You know, your wife wants, you know, Gucci pants. You're able to get Gucci pants. (laughs) <laughs> at a discount from the outlet, of course you go to you're going to go to Florence and you go to the outlet and you're going to get seventy five percent off. Of course, Steve, you're talking to but, film journalists. I can barely afford Gap pants. Never mind Gucci pants. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going to give you a secret, and everybody out there knows is going to hear it too. Okay, outside of Florence, uh-huh. there's a big outlet. You in Eng- you know what an outlet is in England, yeah, right? Yeah. It's a, you get all these great clothes and great products and 
for, for big discounts. So I got to tell you something. It's worth it to fly down to Florence for two days, get a cheap hotel, bring 10 suitcases, and you can go to Gucci and there's pants that cost that retail for $1,500. You know, that would be 1,200 pounds. Yeah. And you'll get them for 100 pounds. So I'm just saying it's very worth it for in October, go down for Christmas and you will get incredible discounts. So when my wife wants those Gucci pants and I, I was in Florence and I got, I got $1,500 pants for $150. So. <laughs> Not bad. The second this pandemic is over, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. Let's talk about London. Wow. What a town. I've, I've had, I've been there for many months at a time, lots of friends there. And um, my great, my great grandfather lived in Liverpool. He escaped Russia and lived in Liverpool for years. So if he didn't leave Liverpool, I would have been uh, a Beatle. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've been, I've been to Liverpool. I've been all over the, all over the country. And I love the UK, love the people of the UK. And um, I'm Jewish, so I, I've been to Temple in the UK, and uh, it's it's um, people are people everywhere. Yeah. You know what I found really beautiful? A mechanic in Los Angeles is the same as a mechanic in New York, as the same as a mechanic in London, yeah. same as a mechanic in Japan, same as a mechanic in Beirut, yeah. in St. Petersburg, Russia, people are the same everywhere, yeah. everywhere. You know, the Dalai Lama had a wonderful quote, has a wonderful quote. What do people really want? They want their family and friends to be safe and happy, and they want their kids to go to Disneyland. Yeah. I mean, what else? <laughs> you know, there, there, there are some people want a yacht. Some people want private plane. Some people want a, a villa in Monte Carlo. But when it really comes down to it, what do you really want? You want to be healthy. Mm -hmm. You want everyone you love to be healthy, safe, and go to Disneyland. That's it. I must say that, and this may come as a, as a surprise to you, Police Academy is perhaps the movie I've seen most of my life. <laughs> What does it mean for you now, though, Police Academy, looking back at that? Lucky, 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 lucky. I, I sat next to Bill Shatner on a plane once, and he said, you know, you're very lucky if you get one character that people yell out your name in New York City. So people see me, Mahoney. And he said, they see me, Captain Kirk. <laughs> they see Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones. They see Stallone, Rocky. They see Schwarzenegger, Terminator. Yeah. They see anybody who has one of those. And so for me, Police Academy was brilliant to film because the director and the script were great. So I just had to sort of color in the line, you know, color in the coloring book because it was all there for me. And Michael, if Michael Keaton didn't turn it down, I wouldn't be sitting here. But 
that's the way all movies are. Someone turns it down and you get it. Um, and it was such a smash hit. The, yeah. this, the first weekend it came out because it had a brilliant trailer. So the first weekend it made gobs of money and around the world, they were just clamoring every, all of the 60 territories. Now the, you know, hundred, hundred, a hundred territories. So they were clamoring for a second one and a third one and a fourth one and a fifth one and a sixth one and a seventh one. <laughs> and um, they made a lot of people laugh. Yes. And they still do. You know what's brilliant? It still plays. They play all the time. So very fortunate in that. There's such a, a wonderfully impish quality to your Mahoney uh, that I, I imagine there must have been a fair amount of improvisation, a fair amount of you injecting your own personality into that character. Things like, you know, if I'm thinking of the, the opening sequence with the, uh, that's a wig, isn't it? You know, wig alert, wig alert. That, that, that feels to me like that's a Steve Gutenberg ad lib. Ah. Well, it was it was written. Um, I, I probably, you know, moved around the words a little. But the writer, Hugh Wilson and uh, Neil Israel and Pat Proft, they wrote a really funny script. So, like I said, I really sort of followed along because I knew how good they were. You know, when you're playing with a great chess player and you start to make a move and he says, don't do that, do this. And you're like, wow, you're okay. I actually did, you know, I did my thing, but I really listened to the director. When you have a great script and a great director, you just listen and he tells you exactly what to do. You do that and it works out great. Sometimes, you know, the script demands some movement and sometimes there's opportunity for a lot of improv. So there's movies like that I've done. But uh, I think a lot of Police Academy, it was just so funny. The script was so funny. I just said, and actually Hugh Wilson really showed me how to be funny certain times. At the end of the movie, I'm running and the bad guy is shooting at me, the villain. And I, have, and I get shot like five times in my, near my feet. Mm. So I did it and he said, no, not funny. Let me show you what's funny. And he did it. And it was hysterical. It was like a Bugs Bunny cartoon. And I, he said, do that. I went, you got it. <laughs> and I just parroted, mimicked every movie made. And it was funny as hell. I'm going to let you go, Steve. But uh, but I just want to ask uh, one last thing. I mean, there's there's been this this trend over the last few few months really last last couple of years we've had things like cobra kai revivals of things that were huge in the 80s cobra kai mighty ducks is now in disney plus last night they announced they're gonna you know bring back csi again uh and so has there has there been any chat with with you you guys about about bringing any of the stuff you know from from the from the 80s back you know the likes of three men and the baby you know, I, I could watch. I could watch that. Three men and a, and a granddaughter. I could. You know, I could. I could go for that. I could go for Police Academy reunion with with Mahoney back. You know, no one. No one has talked about anything substantial. Everyone's talked casually, like you are, and we are. But no, nobody's talked to me about anything serious. And you know, if someone did, I'd love to listen. But. 
I'm very fortunate that, you know, those, those projects were home runs, you know, were, and, um, so I already did it and, <laughs> you know, I already won my race. This is so, it. This is it. So if anyone's listening to this and they do want to put together a proposal, you have to, you have to make sure you, you got to get a script right, co-stars right, story right, paycheck right, <laughs> and then... Yeah. Because, you know, you got to have an excuse to, uh, something's got to be good enough to tear you away from Gracie, uh, right? I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> there she is, falling asleep in your lap. <laughs> it was an exciting interview, she said. <laughs> I usually do that to my interview subjects, not the, uh, not the, the, the dogs that are around them. I feel I'm like- going to, I'm going to have to get some of your interviews and play them right before I go to sleep. Steve, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks so much indeed. Same here, man. Be well. Time now to talk about the movies that are out this week on your Sofaplex, and let's talk about the uh, BAFTA-winning Sky original movie, Sky Cinema original movie, Promising Young Woman. Jimbo, tell us about this movie. So this is the directorial debut of Emerald Fennell of Killing Eve Season 2 fame, uh, and it stars Carrie Mulligan as a woman called Cassie, who has, shall we say, an unusual hobby. Um, so after a kind of hard day's pouring lattes in the in the coffee shop that she works uh she hits a club pretends to be sheet three sheets to the wind and waits for a so-called nice guy to help her home and then you know try and take advantage of her and cassie we sort of discover she's dropped out of medical school when something happened to a friend of hers called nina and she's been in a state of kind of limbo ever since she's still living with her parents she's unable to make peace with it or to move on so she's on this kind of mission which is part revenge and part public service and she's kind kind of luring out predators um and this kind of out of hours mission is made slightly more complicated when she starts dating ryan played by bo burnham uh, and he knew her from medical school and then what follows after that is kind of part romance and part revenge thriller and it doesn't go quite the way i would say that you'd think it would um i have to say i i this is this is a really really good film and i think Fennell does an incredible job with it um like it's it's a brightly colored really witty film i mean it's a black comedy but it's also so tense and I texted you guys when I finished it like it was so stressful I felt physically sick almost all the way through it and thought I was going to die um like because she's on this revenge trip in this film but it's not about catharsis it's not about release like and you get the impression that Cassie herself doesn't really get any joy from what she's doing um it's more about kind of awareness like what she does is she shows these men what they are because i think what this film does is it takes pen takes pains not to paint the predators as predators like they're brilliantly cast by these sort of affable nice guy character actors like uh like adam brody and christopher mince plus and uh and none of them actually think they're bad guys i think that's key to what this film is trying to cut across like mince plus at one point bulks at trying to rape her when she's unconscious but wakes her up before shoving his hand in her pants you know because that makes it all right uh, and all of them think they're good guys because they're like not raping strangers at knife point. And I think part of what this film does is it, it kind of unwraps the sort of rape culture that's become sort of terrifyingly taken for granted, you know, and it also shines a light on guilt by complicity as well, that it's not enough that you don't assault people, but, you know, covering for abusers, excusing abusers, uh, refusing to acknowledge this stuff happens, you know, it's just as bad. Um, and she also doesn't let women off the hook uh, at all. Mm-hmm. Connie Britton and Alison Brie both play uh, play women in this who are kind of taken to task for their role uh, in in what happened to, to, um, to Nina. So I also think it's worth noting this film never actually uses the word rape, not once at any point during the film. And I think that that's telling as well, because that rape itself is not the bar for what constitutes sexual assault. Um, so this is a really brilliantly written film. It's super sharp. I think it 
it's also important and it shines a light on an important issue. But um, I think you know the thing that stands out more than anything for me is Carrie Mulligan's performance in this is so mm. fucking good. Like she's had loads of props for this and she deserves every single one of them. Like this for me is like a career best performance for her. I think it's fantastic. I mean, it, it came out in the States, was it end of last year, I want to say? And, you know, people have rightly been talking about her in this. Like her, her Cassie is all kind of, it's like it's icy cool. Like this is white hot fury and it's pain and rage, but there's fragility in there as well. I mean, there's a lot going on in there. It's a, it's a, it's a really, really, really great performance. Uh, but look, the, this isn't an easy watch by any means. Like I say, I found it close to a two-hour anxiety attack. Like, it's properly gruelling, but it is also brilliant, and it also has some genuinely inspired musical turns, including a version of Britney's Toxic that I will not be forgetting anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that James has promised a young mansplained this movie to us all. <laughs> Hell's bells. Yeah. Um, no, I I pretty much agree actually with everything James said. It, it is incredibly. First, so. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it is incredibly tense. I think what what uh, Fennell does brilliantly is kind of switch from one genre to another and back again and back again, mm. without losing you, without making you feel like the film doesn't know what it is. The film knows exactly what it's doing. Uh, you don't always know what yeah. it's doing or where it's going, and that's as it should be. You know, it's not one of these films that kind of feels uh, feels like it's kind of stumbling around looking for itself. Uh, I think the film knows exactly, but you won't necessarily see it coming, which is which is its great uh, success for me. There has been some criticism of this from a sort of feminist point of view, and I do get some of it. But mostly I think it's a tendency we sometimes have to uh, tear down the things that have been lauded widely as feminist without representing all female experience. And I don't think this does represent all female experience. I don't think it tries to, but I do think it takes an unusual angle on this subject and and does something fresh with it and makes you kind of think about things oddly. So I did have a, I don't know, I did have a, a weird reaction to it at first. I wasn't sure of it. But the more I think about it, the more I like it. The more I think it has its own perspective on things. And and yeah, like I say, I think, you know, Carrie Mulligan's brilliant. The cast are all very good. But it, it's just so set on subverting our expectations that it can take you aback at first. But in the end, I think it does exactly what it sets out to do in a very, very smart way. So I am mm. very much on the pro side in the end. Yeah, I broadly agree. I, I thought as a piece of filmmaking, I think it's quite astonishing. Like as a first film, it feels mm. really fully formed and so assured. Like it's really, really incredibly well executed. As you say, the tension is just sort of, it, it's almost overwhelming throughout. There's an incredible score by um, Anthony Willis, which almost reminded me a bit of like Bernard Herrmann. It had a sort of Hitchcockian feel to it. And the casting is almost used like a weapon. I think Bo Burnham is so good in this. And hmm. the fact that he's used in this particular role is really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And also like someone like Alfred Molina, who has a very small role, but really effective. Hmm. And his sort of, you know, his physicality is really important in, in a role like that. And yeah, Kerry Mulligan, I don't think I've seen, seen her better. Um hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, there's been a lot of discourse about this film. You know, the 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 ending in particular, I think, has been quite divisive. I'm still not sure what I make of that. I, it, it's 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 a film I haven't really like settled my thoughts on yet. You know, mm. there's there's quite a lot to unpick, and it it's trying to do quite a lot of stuff, trying to be kind of satirical and sly and gleeful, but also 
dealing with some really serious and quite traumatic subject matter and i i I, i'm not sure if it 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 quite squared those two things for me but um i'd quite like to watch it again to be honest because it's just Mm. there's a lot going on and it's yeah it's it's really impressive if nothing else i'm very excited to see what you know emerald funnel does does next well if you want to see it again you're going to get yourself a Sky Cinema subscription because that is the only place it is available. It was picked up by Sky a couple of weeks ago. It is now a Sky Cinema original movie, and that is the only place you can see it. I think Now TV as well. If you can, mm-hmm. you can probably watch it Now TV. Also, uh, it's going to be out as of today. It was going to be a theatrical release, but that is no longer the case. But we gave this five stars. Five stars then for promising young woman. Hey, Chris, wait, stop the presses, as it were, metaphorically speaking. Mad Mickelson, as we record, has just joined uh, the cast of Indiana Jones 5. Oh my God. This is huge. This This is is huge news. Where everyone's assuming he's playing the villain because, you know, Mads Mikkelsen. But, he, Mads Mikkelsen uh, yeah. <laughs> but it actually has not, as far as I can tell, been announced. Um, so, so yeah, good, good, good week to be Mads Mikkelsen. He was obviously up for the BAFTA yeah. for another round, which is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and he has Grindelwald coming up yeah. at some points as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's, he's a big franchise dude now. Look at that. That's, a, that's really exciting. If I were the sort of person who would say things like, I am here for that, then I would say that at this point, but I'm not. So I've changed. I'm moving on. Um, perhaps he might play, if we're going with the Beatles, Right. he could play George Martin. He'd be a great George Martin, who huh. was a Beatles producer. Okay. Okay. Get that incredible hair. He's too old to be any of the Beatles. He would have to be- Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, he would have to be George Martin, I think. So in really Indiana Jones and the Fifth Beatle, you think he's the Fifth Beatle? One of the Fifth Beatles? Yes, I think right. he is. He is the MacGuffin that okay. uh, that Indy is trying to track down. Uh, or he could be, you know, it could be like Jaws 4, The Revenge, where he's, you know, the shark was out for revenge on, on Chief Brody's family. So he could be the boulder from the first movie. He could be the boulder from the first <laughs> movie. Yeah. Back so what the boulders? Oh, the boulder itself, not like the boulder's son or something. No, Helen, the li- boulders the can't reproduce. Boulder. No, what are you talking about? Wow, I mean, <laughs> some would say they also can't exert revenge, but I mean, I'll leave that to you. So, well, I don't know. This could be like a Sisyphean task, but with the boulder chasing Indy up a hill. Why would the boulder want revenge? Why would the boulder want revenge? Because Indy outsmarted it. Does no, I, I, I applaud it for its moxie. It is a bolder boulder than you would normally get. <laughs> oh, God. Perhaps the whole thing could be set in Colorado. Anyway, <laughs> should we talk about another movie that people Please. might want to see with their eyeballs? God, oh, Indiana Jones and the Fifth Beetle out next year. <laughs> what is next on our list of movies? He said, looking down our, our, our little list. Um, so we have Thunder Force, which came yeah. out on Netflix last week. Or we have Love and Monsters, which came out on Netflix this week. What do you want to do? Let's go chronologically, shall we? Let's get Thunder yes. Force out of the way. <laughs> In the most respectful mean, way possible. Yeah, let's give 10 minutes, full 10, 10 full minutes to Thunder Force, which is the latest collaboration between Ben Falcone and his uh, good wife, Melissa McCarthy. And um, so far, their previous collaborations have not been great. So, Helen O'Hara, because, you know, Thunder Thunder, Thunder Force, 
Ho! Oh, and yes, that's, that's your initials. Yeah. Literally, that's why I'm reviewing this one. Can I just say, yep. I've seen all of these films, and the reason I'm reviewing this one <laughs> is because it sounded like the start of Thundercats. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's what you want from the Empire I Podcast, right? I just want the right? listeners to understand how we do things. It's the South Park Manatee method yeah. of review assignment. Okay. Anyway, tell us about Thunder Anywho, Force. Yeah, so Thunder Force uh, has Melissa McCarthy and Octavia Spencer playing women who grew up together as children after Spencer was, um, Spencer's character Emily was orphaned at a young age and she was sort of fostered out and she met Lydia, who's McCarthy's character. And they were friends in school, but Emily never really had time, you know, for friendship because she was so focused on uh, on her mission, on her work. Uh, her parents had been scientists. She too was focused on being a scientist. Lydia was kind of just like they're living a normal life. And um, they come back together just as Emily is about to create this kind of superhero serum-y stuff that will turn you into a superhero. And the reason that they need this is because there are these people called miscreants. Flag smashers. Oh, sorry. Called flag smashers who were, who were created by a comet or something passing by. And um, <laughs> I'm not kidding. And who were pretty much all bad guys. So they need good superheroes to, to control these miscreants. Uh, so the two of them basically, through a series of unfortunate events, end up injecting themselves with the serum and uh, training as and then fighting as superheroes against these baddies. Mm-hmm. I mean... It's kind of like, there are some funny bits. I did chuckle a couple of times, I'm not going to lie. I find, you know, Octavia Spencer and Melissa McCarthy both incredibly likeable actresses. And there is a running gag where Jason Bateman is one of the miscreants who has, like, crab claws for arms. That's his thing. He has crab claws for arms. It's bizarre and uh, very stupid, but I was at least, you know, uh, vaguely amused. (laughs) Jimbo sounds like he also loved it. He's in so much pain right now. But but it just like it doesn't like feel like it's a superhero parody movie. It doesn't feel like it's they've watched a lot of superhero movies. It just feels like it's you know a, a, another one of their kind of comedies where they kind of vaguely wrote an outline of a script and then just kind of trusted to a bit of um, improv. Which like Melissa McCarthy is an incredible improv artist. Like she genuinely, if you've seen like behind the scenes stuff from some of her films, she is incredibly funny. But She's usually funny when you give her a bit of structure around that mm. improv to really work with. And I don't think it always does here. So there's there's a couple of like genuine moments of connection between Spencer and McCarthy as these these two kind of rekindle this old friendship. But generally speaking, it's just kind of a film that happens in the room while you're kind of watching it. Yeah. And wanting to be somewhere else, primarily, in my case. I mean, look, it's a it's a comedy, so instantly it and I are not on even ground. Mm. But uh it's a really shit comedy, and that's just not good. And I've got a lot of time for Melissa McCarthy. I think Spy is absolute comedy gold. Yeah. Uh, but she's fucking wasted in this. And Octavia Spencer, Oscar winning actress Octavia Spencer here, has mm. nothing to work with at all. And the script is so weak and the gags are so flat. And I really struggle to find anything entertaining about this. And then Jason Bateman in the world's most thankful role, as you said, as a man with crab arms. Yes. (laughs) I just, it's just, I I can't even. Bobby Cannavale as well as the kind of villain of this piece. All of them just seem like they want. Is is it really? It's not really, is it? (laughs) I mean, the second it comes onto the screen. I just felt like everyone felt like they had somewhere better to be. And fuck Mm. knows I did. So... No. <laughs> and you're in lockdown. So. And I'm in lockdown. <laughs> is it true that his character is entirely CG? Because when I saw him appear on screen, I thought to myself, that's the uncanny valley. <laughs> I 
I am available to write Thunder Force too, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you'd fit right in. That's the level wow. of humor you can expect. Wow, that is harsh. If we'd given Chris crab arms. I'm not even saying who it's harsh to, it's just harsh. <laughs> then that's basically Thunder Force. Uh, Jane Huge, yeah. uh, did, did this torture your art house soul? Were you longing for black and white for cinematography <laughs> subtitles? Yeah, I put on the subtitles just to make me feel something. Um, it- <laughs> It, uh, you, know, you know what I went in expectations are a funny thing I went in expecting this to be you know a crime against cinema and in many ways it was mm-hmm. um, but uh, <laughs> it, 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 it surprised me there were moments that I, I did genuinely enjoy I thought the, the scenes with Jason Bateman in particular were quite funny just because it's so weird to see a man with crab claws <laughs> scuttle <laughs> scuttle sideways the, the fact that he always left every room walking sideways yeah, was yeah. inspired that was that was the single best joke in it that was yeah. quite funny and the, right at the end I think the very final scene is Jason Bateman and Melissa McCarthy feeding each other raw chicken in a yeah. really sort of sensual way Spoiler. which is just <laughs> very strange and I there's something you know enjoyably weird about that I, I kind of wish the rest of the film was as just bonkers uh, mm. at, at that level it really is the rest of it's fairly mediocre to be honest but um, wow. Can't believe you gave away the last scene of Thunder Force. So to yeah. save that sort of shit for the Thunder Force spoiler special, where we spend 10 hours talking about Ooh. the movie. Anyone available for that? Um, you know what? I am busy that day. Yeah. It's a real shame. Yeah, I haven't even but, told you the day oh. yet, Helen. No, but that's the day that I'm busy. Really? Yeah. Oh, just show no. me your calendar. Show me your diary. No, it's it's, it's oh. right here. It's written it's in full. big letters. Busy <laughs> so, that day. It's so full of activities. I can't lift it up. <laughs> that's how heavy it is. Well, there you go. Thunder Force. Sad to say, we gave it two stars. Two stars in for Thunder Force. Uh, and that brings us on to a movie that's been knocking around for a long, long time. I've been waiting for this to appear, and I'm very, very excited. I haven't had a chance to see it myself. But it is Love and Monsters, mm. which is out right now on Netflix. Tell us about this one, John Nugent. Yes, uh, this is another film that was supposed to get a theatrical release, but due to that dastardly corona is going straight to Netflix. Um, It's from a director called Michael Matthews, South African uh, filmmaker who I'm not really familiar with. He only has done one other film called Five Fingers for Marseille, but it's kind of it's an original script it's a, came from a spec script um been described as mad max meets uh, zombieland meets john hughes which i think is about right <laughs> that's about right yeah and this screenplay is by brian duffield and matthew robinson and brian duffield is also the writer director of a film called spontaneous which is another one of these movies that has been knocking around for ages and ages and ages and then just wound up one day on sky and as well worth a, a look very very a, a weird like this one very very weird love story he was involved in The Babysitter, which was funny as well. Yeah, and he's oh, good on Twitter. Good. Right, so yeah. yeah, give him a follow. Anyway, John. The the gist of this one is uh, we get a sort of prologue right at the start, a sort of hand-drawn prologue, which sums everything up very neatly. So an asteroid heads to Earth, an asteroid called Agatha 616. It was Agatha all along. Hastens the apocalypse. So the people of the world fire rockets at the asteroid to try and stop it, which they do successfully, but the rockets go down onto Earth and mess up all of uh, nature and essentially mutate um, all of the animals of Earth, turning them into insects, giants, insects, monsters. and cold-blooded animals. Yeah. There you go, cold-blooded animals. Uh, so you've got all of these giant 
insects and uh, amphibians roaming the earth and basically killing 95% of the world's human population. So all humans are sort of living in these clusters in these colonies underground hiding from uh, from these monsters. Um, and so we meet uh, our hero, him off Maze Runner, Dylan O'Brien, <laughs> as one of the survivors seven years after this apocalypse has happened, living underground. Um, and he's dreaming of meeting up with his estranged girlfriend from pre-apocalypse times, played by Jessica Henwick. Uh, and so he but he's an absolute soft boy self-deprecating soft boy uh, not very good at fighting monsters so he makes an ill-advised journey above ground to try and meet up with his uh, estranged girlfriend so that's that's basically it it's a lovely premise wears its sort of monstery influences on its sleeve but there's it's, it's got a bit of an amblin vibe to it i suppose but it's it's actually yeah. really really lovely i i really like this one i thought it was you know, it's got a really good sort of mix of like CGI and practical effects. I think it actually was Oscar nominated for its visual effects. Mm, it was. Wow. And I really liked uh, Dylan O'Brien in this. I thought he was, I haven't really seen him do anything uh, that that amazed mm. me. I think in The Maze Runner, he was, you know, fairly bland, YA hero, you know, not much to him. Here he's really charismatic. He's quite charming. He's pretty funny. He's very dry. Jessica Henwick's very good as well. She's she's about to be in the new Matrix film and the Russo Brothers Grey Man movie. So she's kind and of... She was uh, Iron Fist is probably what people will know her from. That's right, yeah. Where she was the good character, Colleen. <laughs> <laughs> the one good one. And uh, she's in Shadow and Bone as well, which I think is just about to come onto mm. Netflix as well. So feels like she's going to be absolutely massive. But yeah, it's just I think it's just really nice to see an original film that is, you know... I, I, original blockbuster that's fun and has a sense of scale and ambition it's very imaginative it's really well made it is you know it throws up a few surprises i wouldn't say it's like wildly surprising it follows a bit of a formula but i i i can you know happily recommend it i thoroughly enjoyed it as well i just um i mean the the monsters i should say are really gross like super duper horrible like insecty you know if you didn't you remember that scene in king kong if that scene yeah. creeped you out that this is not the movie for you there are big giant insects and there's goo and there's a lot of goo and it's yeah, the things that will just wiggle at you oh mm, no hard pass <laughs> um if you liked the uh if you like the leeches scene in stand by me first of all what's wrong with you and second of all boy are you in for a treat so uh th th there are some gross bits in this but it is held together because i think he uh Dylan O'Brien is just fantastic in this he's he's absolutely adorable and likable and uh, great. He has a great relationship with a dog who gives mm. the best canine performance, I would say, that I've seen in about a year. And it is uh, really, really charming and well thought out. And, and I don't know, did we even mention um, Michael Rooker? Michael Rooker's mm. in it as well as a bit of a mentor. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's a good cast, exactly where you need it to be. And most of the time, it's just one man and his dog and some giant insects. And who needs more than that? Nobody. No. I need less than that, actually. I, I would do with just one man and his dog and no giant insects would be super good. Also. Yes, <laughs> this is very true. Sounds like you guys are in the three-star camp in this one. At least three, I might go At four. At least three, yeah. maybe yeah. four. Okay, yeah, yeah. well, the verdict is in. Five stars in for Love of Monsters. <laughs> uh, I will 
try and find time this weekend to check it out because that does sound good indeed. But anyway, on that note, that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by... Aubrey Plaza, star of the mind-bending comedy drama. I say comedy drama, but more dramedy comedy. Black Bear. So that's very, very exciting. How exciting indeed. Oh, and don't forget, of course, uh, our supporter special subscription channel is available for you to join. If you haven't already, come on in. The water is lovely. There are 170 supporter specials awaiting for you, and the number is growing by the week. We're doing weekly Falcon and the Winter Soldier spoiler specials at the moment, but we also uh, put up a spoiler special this week for Ammonite with the director Francis Lee. Next up is Godzilla vs. Kong with the director Adam Wingard. There's other stuff on the way uh, as well. Very, very exciting, including Promising Young Woman with Emerald Fennell and Without Remorse with the director Stefano Salima. So £2.99 a month or £32.99 for a year will get you access to all those spoiler specials and our incredible and ever-growing archive. I've done a lot of shameless plug-in this week, and that is the last shameless plug I'm going to do. But until we meet again, until then, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Squadcast Names, Fast and Nugius, the John Saga. Told you, this guy is art house to the core, John Nugent. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye, John. See you in six months. Yeah, see you in 2022. (laughs) (laughs) It is goodbye from Gotham's Reckoning. Why have you gone for that, James Dyer? I just I was running late and was feeling very uninspired, <laughs> so I'm sorry. I just couldn't think of anything. I'm clearly I'm saving all of my real I'm saving all the gold for the Pilot TV podcast, which oh, you can God. listen to on Monday. Please join me there when we'll be talking about Kate Winslet's return to TV in Mayor of Easttown on Sky, among other things. Oh, bless you for thinking I wasn't gonna cut that bit out. <laughs> Thank you, Jimbo. I can't wait to listen to that. Good. It's Good. goodbye like also it. from <laughs> It's goodbye from the Hitman's wife's bodyguard's cousin, Helen O'Hara. Yeah, it would have been longer, but I ran out of space on squadcast names. Yeah. Doodaloo. I can see now because you are you got so many friends and cousins and, mm. and bodyguards and wives to the bodyguards and cousins to the bodyguards. I can yep. see and why your so social calendar mm. is so full so that you full. can't do the ten hour Thunder Force sporter special Such that I want shame. to do this weekend. I'm available for all other sporter specials, but just not that one. What a shame. It is a massive shame. Jersey Boys? Jersey Boy, 12-hour Jersey Boy spoiler special. Let's do it. You know, that one also, I'm actually washing my hair that day, so that's a shame. How? What a coincidence. I have no idea what's happening. Uh, You should make it last for 48 hours and call it uh, Two Days in the Valley. (laughs) That damn him may be the best Valley joke we've had all podcast. (laughs) Damn your eyes, man. Damn your eyes. Anyway, it's goodbye from me. Wig alert, wig alert. Um, Anyway, I'm off to ride Thunder Force 2, Octopus's Garden, in which Indiana Jones, The Beatles, Mads Mikkelsen and Melissa McCarthy all cram raw chicken into each other's mouths. And believe me, folks, I am fully on board for that. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye.